you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Welcome to Mindshock True Crime. This is Bruce McGuire, Maxwell Powers, and Johnny Mills. And this is episode 27, Witness X. And we will be discussing new witnesses, old witnesses, and how these stories all match up, and what happened on Route 112 on Wild Emanusac Road. That fateful night on February 9th, 2004, we are approaching that date quickly. So if you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Like our Facebook page. And you could also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, and Patreon. All right, so Maxwell, we're on episode 27. <laughs> Do you know who Witness A is? Actually, don't. Who's that? Johnny? I don't know. Letter people. So Witness A some people allege that Witness A started all of this insanity in the Maura Murray case because her accounts seem to contradict the official law enforcement narrative, which some people even think the Oxygen Special, the disappearance of Maura Murray, was made specifically to debunk Witness A or to switch up the narrative to kind of cast away any kind of doubt or questioning of the official timeline. How did they do that? They did that by placing Cecil Smith in the SUV that she saw. Hmm. So remember SUV 001, Maxwell, do you know about that? Yeah. Are you sure? SUV. <laughs> Maxwell Arm. Uh, what would you say, 001 or something? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. That's like the first vehicle. So supposedly it was first on supposedly. scene before Cecil Smith. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this is actually the crux of the mystery, or one of the main cruxes of the mystery in the Moore Murray case, is why did a witness see a SUV nose-to-nose with Maura's car before the official arrival time of police? Johnny, you following here, or what? Yeah. I mean, this is this is like the one of the problems in so the case. So what's the name of witness A? Anything? Uh, well, yes. Her name is Karen McNamara. And supposedly, her account is what started this kind of snowball effect of conspiracy questioning and all of these things. Obviously, this we still don't know if Maura left UMass. But why is she called uh, Witness A instead of just Karen? Because she didn't come out with, she didn't want to make her name publicly known originally. And then eventually, she came out on the Missing Maura Murray podcast and gave her account. Which, coincidentally, some people also allege that when she came out with that account on the Missing Maura Murray podcast. That's when the podcast ceased being uh, so-called <laughs> legitimate and kind of is just being a mouthpiece for police. What, is she not a real witness or something? Or? <laughs> no, she is. Okay. I'm saying the, the podcasters on the Missing Maura Murray podcast. That's Before that episode, they actually appeared to be legitimate. That's this very interesting. Did you, did, it's very interesting, like, People noticed like the tone of the show. Is Some people did, yeah. Some people did because before that they were questioning everything, and then oh. since after that they don't want any kind of logical discussion. They want everybody <laughs> to dogmatically just accept what they say. They were threatened, and now yeah, in their previous episode, well, not threatened, but I guess they just want to make money. So you can't. It's harder to make money when you're criticizing police, <laughs> <laughs> or it's hard to get 
the police that's, to cooperate, it's that's hard stressful. to get. Yeah, it's hard to get. So it's it's sort of understandable in a way because it, it takes you know it takes quite a lot of integrity to be able to just kind of say <laughs> you're only going for the truth no matter what. Yeah, integrity. Uh, well, for example, John Smith is always pushing for the truth. Yeah. Regardless of people's opinions on him, their last podcast was just trashing him and saying everything he's saying is a lie, and Maggie Freeling going on and saying that, mm. and then but at the same time acknowledging that there was dog. So wait a second. So so he everything he says is a lie, but but some of it's true. It's kind of weird. Hmm. And so the police apparently have not still not taken any action on the GPR scan and the two separate dog hits on this property. That John Smith informed them about in December. So, so no action, no digging, supposedly nothing. nothing. Supposedly nothing, and supposedly <laughs> no interest either by the police. And and there's like it's not a, like a a private property that can cause damage to the property. Well, like, the property owners have allowed. There's no warrant required. <laughs> supposedly oh, the so, property so owners, no, but the, uh, there's new property owners. Right, right. Did you miss the last two podcasts, Max? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, what I'm saying is like if they dig up, like how much damage would they have to cover? damage it's just ground oh i thought it was like cement and garage or something like that i'm mixing, well, I'm might, mixing up the cases uh, I think. no there might be concrete there but i don't know if they said if it was an actual house it might be mm. some kind of uh old burial ground mm. but here's the thing the police if the police checked it out before i mean it's like they completely discount and then the podcasters and maggie like it's like they don't have the logic to understand maybe a criminal might move a body I mean, it doesn't seem that insane. Like, mm. is it really that <laughs> completely outlandish that a, cr- a criminal might move a body at some point? I mean, it's, it's been done many times. And wouldn't a burial ground be a good place to move the body to? Because if there's other ah, bones there, it would yeah. mix it all up. So if the criminal has even a little bit of logic, unlike some people commenting on the case, <laughs> they would. <laughs> it would He's definitely. Jamming, dude. It, what it, are they saying that what? it's not a person's body? What, no, they're saying. Well, the law enforcement just said they ruled it out in two thousand. No, I'm saying the, the people that are saying whatever they're saying that is not her, or like. Oh no, they're saying that the police, for whatever reason, are justified in not even responding to it. Because they, they're deleting posts off, like, the police Facebook. They're deleting all of – like, it says, oh, if you have any information, contact the police. People contact with them, and then they delete it. <laughs> like, whether it's her or not, yeah, I know there's they, still, like, a thing there that's yes. possibly a human. Yeah, they don't care. Okay, so that's kind of – Or at least they haven't said they do. They haven't said it. They've been completely dead silent on it. So, and it's But seems, there's still no proof that we can look at that says, like, oh, look, there's an actual body, like a X-ray Supposedly, or John Smith has sent that to both – uh, but, the local police, the state police, and uh, I think they're sending it to news outlets, too, to try to put pressure on uh, the police to do something about it. But he supposedly didn't do any of that, right? John Smith himself? I don't know. There, isn't there people saying he didn't do that? He wasn't part of it? Uh, well, they were saying that, but he is part of it. I mean, there's several people involved. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so. And what's weird is, like, the the gossip rumors and innuendo on the other podcast against John Smith when they've spoken so extensively about not engaging in, like, crazy conspiracy theories, a.k.a. <laughs> cri- AKA critical thinking. Not allowed. <laughs> not allowed to logically think about different theories. But, uh, yeah, and, and so that's what they're doing to John Smith. Like, I've, I've actually said this all the time. Like, we don't. So people actually think I'm John Smith. <laughs> <laughs> you are. <laughs> <laughs> they think, yeah, there's some crazy, crazy people out there. And they think that 
like I'm saying everything John Smith is saying is true. He might be lying about everything, but how are you not going to investigate it? Are, yeah. If you're doing an investigation, shouldn't you investigate something? That's interesting. You know, I don't blindly support anybody. I mean, we, we go over every single possible theory. That's, that's, Everybody's lying. Nobody's lying. That's interesting. Like, the police doesn't seem interested, but if volunteers or, like, you know, civilians start digging up, they'd probably get pissed off. Right? Yeah. Right. Well, if they found it, yeah. If, if they, they found, found it, they'd be like, or well, why you Because let's say it's not. Let's say it's not Mora. If there is another person there, and if they are a victim, yeah, of they, the time, they they would get mad at that. So, but they still, they yeah. wouldn't. They would. Yeah, logic is like, not their thing, Maxwell. <sighs> logic is not their thing. Man, they had, ah, oh, man, dog confirmation and two different, supposedly. If that's true, again, we don't know. But if it's true, like, wouldn't they investigate, or would they at least say we've received a report? We're gonna do an investigation to see if it's legitimate or not. But like the dead silence, like what does that tell you? Because if you look at any other case, like missing persons cases, the police are always saying like they they're informing family of dog hits or whatnot from even one or two states away. They're like we don't know if it's them, but they got this hit. It's gonna be checked out, and then they keep the family in the loop, and then it either gets ruled out or not. But in this case, for whatever reason, supposedly the property was previously checked out. Hmm. That's what they said. It was checked out. We don't actually know how it was checked out or even if it was checked out. And what kind of dogs they used. Were they cadaver dogs or were they just regular scent dogs? Or, and we don't know. Huh. Yeah, so. All right, so let's move on to the witnesses. So, before, actually, before we get to that, I want to look at another angle with Sergeant Cecil Smith. So, Sharon Roush, Billy Roush's mother, on moremurray.com back when they had the forums up, she spoke extensively with Sergeant Smith on February 10th. So this is 24 hours after he found the abandoned car, which is kind of weird. So she, because didn't they, so they arrived earlier than Billy? Mm. But anyway, so he told her that he assumed the car was driven by Fred Murray because it was registered to him because he ran the license plates. He assumed that Fred Murray had left the area in another vehicle because the area is a tourist skiing resort area, and when people break down, they usually usually there's more than one person in one car up there, so it's kind of like a common thing. When someone breaks down, someone else gets a ride with somebody because they're not going to sit around in the cold, usually. I mean, if they're up there to ski with a big group. Mm-hmm. So that's what he said, and that was the usual situation. And... Sharon said that she questioned him extensively and he made no mention of knowing that a female was the driver. So, however, obviously Butch Atwood did know that the driver was Mora. Although originally he said it wasn't her because she had her hair down. But anyway, so she also reports that he told her that there was only one set of footprints leading from the driver's side of the car, confirming that the driver was alone. Interesting. So... There was a bolo report, a very accurate bolo report that night. So Cecil, so it, it's it's kind of weird how he said he assumed it was Fred Murray, but it's a bolo report. Be on the lookout for. Uh, I don't yeah. know how many times we've been over that, Max. <laughs> We're in episode twenty-seven. Be on the lookout. Yeah. Be on the lookout. Yeah. What's the A? Be on the lookout. Bolo. What? Oh, bolo. Be on the lookout. Yes. Okay. A's and thes are generally not included in acronyms. Be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. I have to keep saying it. Bolo can be on a, a coffee mug. <laughs> be on the lookout for Maxwell's memory. <laughs> be on the lookout. Where'd it go? So what some people 
think is if, again, we're going to go into the earlier accident, but if this accident happened at 7.30, then that would, it could possibly explain why Witness A never saw Butch Atwood, because she didn't see Butch Atwood. She saw the cars with nobody. We're going to get into her exact account in a moment. So if, if people are talking about different time periods, would that make sense? So if there was a man smoking a cigarette at the car, and then at a different point, either there was a girl there or there wasn't because they made that up. Either way, if that was two different time spans, I mean within an hour or so, but they think they're talking about the same time, <laughs> would that account for everything? Yeah, like somebody else stopped maybe to see like, oh, what's this car doing here? Uh, like, let's check it or out. Or someone else drove it there, a man smoking a cigarette, like Faith Westman reported. It's mm-hmm. it's rough. All right, let's go into Witness A's exact account, and this is a transcript of her interview with Alex and John Smith. This was on the uh, Missing Laura Murray podcast. So Alex says, my name is Alex, someone interested in the case, and I've known uh, the person referred to as Witness A for uh, quite a few years since I was in high school. I was friends with your son. And kind of getting back into the Murray case, what Witness A saw always struck me as one of the most potentially important things and one of the most immediately dismissed things. And when I had heard that you had made some claims that were very similar, it uh, kind of all pieced together for me. And I spoke with you on Facebook and kind of confirmed that you are the person that saw that and I guess my first question would be whether or not you are willing to say your name yeah at this I don't know if you have to say your last name necessarily um hmm because it can be confirmed by the family that just on visual that you have met them so they know who you are but I was just curious if you were interested in using your name Karen McNamara says at this point I will it's Karen McNamara okay so there is a name to witness a Karen says, but I was hesitant for quite a while. Alex asks, what made you hesitant? Karen said, because I feel what I saw could be, could indicate that there was some kind of a cover-up with the police, and it made me afraid of the police, what I saw. Alex says, I know we've all kind of... She actually read- said that? Yes. Wow. Don't you listen to any podcasts on Maura Murray? That's, that's Are you interested in the Maura Murray case, Maxwell? <laughs> That's interesting. She actually said that. Yes. We've all kind of read, you know the same account of it, but would you mind going over what you did see that night, starting from the appointment you had that night? Karen says, okay, I worked as a counselor and outpatient at Friendship House in Woodsville. And when I left work that night, as I always do, I called home to leave a message that I was on my way. Because I go across Route 112, where there's no cell service, and a lot of, you know, the forest. And then I always make a phone call when I get to the beaver pond to say I'm coming down the hill or, you know, that I've made it across safely. And that night, I believe I had a cancellation and I left about 7.15. When I was going up the road past the hospital, I think it's Swiftwater Road, a police car came up behind me with its lights on. It was car 001 and it passed me. Alex says, now when you say 001, was that a sedan or an SUV? McNamara says, it was an SUV. It was not a sedan. It was an SUV. So you're kind of just using the term car to say vehicle. Yes. Which is kind of one of the criticisms online. Continue. Karen says, yes, yes. And then it passed me with its lights on and it continued up on the road. And then after I'd gone down Goose Lane and came out onto 112... I went to take a right by the store there, and car 001 passed me again, which I thought was kind of curious, 
that the same police car with its lights on and still going fast. And he went up 112 headed east as I was. And I know there's a place there where it's like rolling hills and the police lights could just flash on and off. I could see just flash on and off. Because we were going over hills at different times and he got ahead of me. When I got to the corner by the weathered barn, you know, the sharp curve there, I saw the police car's SUV 001, and it looked like it was nose-to-nose with another car, a dark-colored sedan. And it didn't appear to me as though the car was really in an accident. Let's say that again. And it didn't appear to me as though that car was really in an accident. It appeared as though it was parked on the wrong side of the road. And when I went past it, it stopped, um, like in front of Butch Atwood's house. And I had an instinctual feeling that I should help. And I turned around and I looked and I sat there and I thought about it. And it didn't seem like it made sense for me to get out and go back because my cell phone didn't work. The police were already there and it didn't even look like the bad accident. Um, That was just my impression. And then as I started again down the hill, I knew there was a car past me right there. And then I went on 112 East towards Lincoln where I lived. And about when I got to Beaver Pond, that's when you first get service again. I made a phone call, which I normally do, to confirm that I've made it across the wilderness. Before I come down the hill into the town, uh, cell phone service is very sparse coming down that hill and into the town. It was like right up by the beaver pond. And I remember talking to my dad that night, and I said, um, I said that I was passed by the same police car twice. And I thought that was kind of humorous. And he said, how do you know it was the same one? And I said, it was car 001. And we kind of laughed about how a small town might only have one car, you know. And that's why it's so memorable to me that it was 001. All right. Now we have to make another point here. So keep it. She says 001. Like, like why just say the same car? Like, why is it referred to as 001? Like, you'll see. And we talked about it on countless podcasts. Do they have 100 cars there? What? Do they have 100 cars? Why no. three digits? They only had a couple of vehicles, but that was the desi- that's the sticker on the side. And the reason why it's so significant, I guess I'll say it in a moment since you got it, since you must have forgot, even though we discussed it on probably at least ten episodes. Yeah, but I, I always forget, so <laughs> <laughs> might as well say it. Um, <laughs> so but when she first came out with her account, we've discussed this as well, she was ridiculed online. She was saying, Oh, this is just someone crying for attention. She didn't make that. She waited all these years and she just made up the story. And we'll get into her cell phone records and how she didn't make the story and how she reported this immediately. Because that was all swept under the rug. Nobody wants to talk about how legitimate she is. And then once it couldn't be denied, then the Oxygen show comes out and Cecil Smith says, oh, well, I was in 001. That's interesting. Well, like, what... Like, what does her, her cell phone have to do with it? Because like, the cell phone records proved she made the call when she made it because of the timeline. At which time did she go down that road? Hmm. It's all critical to the timeline. Um, but she, but I thought she didn't want to use it because she knew that it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. When, when did she make the call again? <sighs> okay, so the call, there's no cell service within this area. Yeah. So when she gets to a certain point where the cell service comes back, she always, if you were paying attention, she always yeah. makes, every night when she comes back from work, she makes a call from that spot to let, her know, to let people know she's on the way. Okay, got it. So this is routine for her. Got it. But that night she left a little early because she didn't have her last appointment. When you say, like, if you were paying attention, like, do you think I'm, 
unintentionally not paying attention no? because I'm just saying. Yeah, but like why do you keep repeating it? Just say it. Like I don't Wait, like, what? Like <laughs> say yeah, but what? you keep saying like if you were paying attention, you would like but I can't pay attention. Like you already know that. I don't know that cuz sometimes you do pay attention. I mean, you know we're talking about 001. Yeah, but, uh, like you wouldn't have asked why don't they just say 1 if you weren't paying attention to which car we're talking about. So you do pay attention. You just weren't paying attention about that other part. Yeah, but I just <laughs> the maximum Yeah, but I don't I can't pay attention, so I I but you know. do. You do. You were just paying attention. Or it could be mis- You're very selective. It's, it's You're very both. selective about what you pay attention to. <laughs> well, if you want it that bad, increase the focus. <laughs> or maybe since I, you, you have a finite amount of focus, best, but... you finite amount of focus, you apply it in certain different areas, and you just happen not to apply it to the area where you were interested in the answer. But I'm really interested. I just, I don't know. What the hell? All right. What was your question? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, as I was saying, it was 001. She got a lot of flack for it. And we'll, we'll get into all of that. So, Alex says the number of the car. Karen says, yeah. And it was definitely an SUV. And that's all. And it was, you know, I saw a clip on TV. That car that I had seen was the woman who was missing. And I saw, you know, a few things on TV about it. And then I had an urging that said, even if you think you saw nothing, you should call and report that to the police. Alex says, so this is a couple days after in the news and stuff. Karen says, it might have been a day or two after. Alex says, I think John said it was Wednesday before they first went on TV. John Smith says, Wednesday, I think. Maybe even Thursday morning was the first report, so probably Thursday. Alex says, so a few days later, you saw this. So that day, you called which agency? Karen says, I called the Haverhill Police Department. I remember very clearly I was sitting at my desk in my office, and I called them and told them I'm calling to say I didn't see anything. I didn't see anybody walking. I didn't see any cars parked along the road. I didn't see anything except for 001 that passed me twice. And there was at the scene when I drove by. Alex says, and this is the first, your first police call? Karen says, "Uh uh-huh. Alex says, to Haverhill PD. Karen says, "Uh uh-huh. And have you reported this to the New Hampshire State Police? Karen says, no, not at that time. Just to Haverhill? Uh Uh-huh. So, Karen says, and they said to me, are you sure you saw car 001? And I said, absolutely without a doubt and you know and hung up a little while later i got a phone call from the police department and they said we understand that you called and said that you saw car 001 and i said yes that's what i saw they said are you sure it was car 001 and i said absolutely alex said and how about how long after your initial phone call was this phone call back do you remember Karen says, I would guess within an hour. So it was the same afternoon or morning. Karen says, I don't know for sure, but I would guess within an hour they called back. And when they called back, did they give a name of who was calling? Karen says, if they did, I don't remember. And do you specifically, do you remember specifically how they worded the vehicle you saw was out of commission that night? Do you remember? Karen says, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't remember if it was the Haverhill PD that told me the car was out of commission that night. It may have been the detective that I had talked to later. I don't really remember. If it was at that point they told me that, I don't know. So she's being honest. She's So it seems like she's honest when she doesn't remember. So certain things she remembers distinctively yeah. and other things she's not trying to kind of play games and pretend she remembers. She's saying she doesn't remember because she doesn't remember. 
Wait, let me get this straight. So Cecil was driving just a regular cop car, and this 001 is like the SUV. Supposedly, that was the initial. So it was a police SUV, and there's a police sedan. And that's why it's so... The sedan is 002. That... And okay. that, that, so we'll get into, remember when, well, I mean, we'll get into the towing situation when McKean pulled out a police cruiser from a ditch. And supposedly, so one of the theories, which we've discussed countless times, is that Cecil and Jeff Williams switched vehicles because Jeff Williams was driving drunk. Right. So if, if Williams was in the sedan and then he got pulled out and then he switched with Cecil, so then Williams got into the SUV and Cecil got into the sedan. But we don't know. But, I mean, we'll go, we're going over the whole thing, so I'll, I'll give you all the information. The first time you talked to the family, when was that before you found their website? Or had you talked to them before? And this is the Missing Maura Murray website, which I, the forum has been taken down. Karen says, I think, that, I think that someone had told me about the website and that they were looking to gather information. And I went on the website and I either emailed or called Helena. Alex says, I have a copy of the initial email from Helena Dwyer Murray, and it's got a date of April 7th, 2005. I don't know if that was the date she sent it back to you or if that was the date you sent the initial email because it's got your email address right on it. Do you remember if the 7th of April was about the first time you've seen the website? Karen says, I don't remember. Alex says, because then the Karen says, I don't remember the day I had actually, uh, Helena said that she wanted to talk to me and we met. And this was after you posting or sending her the email? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I had talked to her, but if that was the initial contact that I had with her, then maybe that was when it was. Alex says, well, some people kind of speculated that you've, you know, have tried to interject yourself in the case and that the other thing, and you know, kind of, you know that this is only recently. And the first online account of Witness A that I could find anywhere was dated in 2008. And that was someone on the topics forum since it was transitioned named Weeper. And Weeper, I believe, is Frank Kelly, the PI. John Smith says, yeah. Alex says, who posted this exact email so you must have copied it from the website? John Smith says, that's one of our private investigators. Alex says, or got it from the family directly. So that was in 2008. This predates that by three years. So to me, that kind of squashes the people saying, well, she wants you to, you know, interject herself into the case. You know, not only the fact that you've never wanted to use your name kind of speaks to that to me, but John Smith says, I'd like to interject one thing about Weeper. Weeper was actually one of the original PIs with the New Hampshire League of Private Investigators. Alex says, I was actually wondering if maybe that is who you had spoken to, because along with the initial email from Helena Dwyer Murray, there is a report from, I assume, a PI or a detective of some sort, it doesn't give a name, that was present during an April 24, 2005 meeting between you and the family members. It doesn't say who, but they basically corroborate all the same stuff, and I was wondering if... Maybe even that was, you know, I'm sure that's somebody. John Smith says, uh-huh. Alex said, who was kind of a player? John Smith says, Frank. I'll use his name. Frank, the investigator, actually said that. Alex says, I'm not implying that this is definitely his weeper, but John Smith says, right. Alex says, it's someone. John Smith says, it, it, it is. I can confirm that for you. That's who that was. Alex says, okay. John says, yes, and because he stated to us that Karen McNamara is one of the most credible witnesses he has ever spoke with in his 30 years of private investigation. What? It's a big claim. Like, claim. Yes. Like 30 years out of 30 years. Like Karen says, oh, that was nice. 
<laughs> Alex says, so uh, that kind of sets up the timeline. Like I said, the first thing I can find online was 2008, and this predates that by quite a while and is only just barely a year after the actual accident. Karen says, I don't have a sense of how important that was until Helena had pointed out to me on the website that the time was in conflict with my uh, cell phone records. Alex says, when you made your, and we might as well get right to that, the transcript of the meeting between you and Weeper, you had your cell phone records present at this meeting. You don't have them now. Karen says, "Uh uh-huh. Alex said, but you had them then, and basically it says the exact same story you gave us. It is the same story. But then it says, Karen said that she usually called home before leaving work and then again on her cell phone when she got to the top of the hill at Beaver Pond because when she got cell reception. That night, she could not confirm if she called home prior to leaving work, but she did have her cell phone call record for that night. Her first call after reaching Beaver Pond was to check her voicemail at 7.52 p.m. The distance from the accident site to Beaver Pond is 11 miles. If she were traveling at 30 to 35 miles per hour, it would have taken about 18 minutes at 40 miles per hour, 17 minutes. This means she would have passed the accident site at about 7.35 p.m. Alex says, and if you go on Google Maps and punch in those two points, point A to point B gives you a time of about 14 minutes. So that puts you at the scene at around 7.38, and this says... This means she would have passed the accident site at 7.35, so that's pretty close. According to dispatch records, Cecil Smith H2 arrived at the scene at 7.46. So, so this is what threw the wrench into the whole official narrative. If Cecil arrived at 7.46, who did Karen see at either 7.34, 7.35, 7.38? Either way, that's—it's not like one minute off. Yeah, It could be up to about 10 minutes off. That's a pretty long period of time for something to happen. And if Cecil's not in SUV 001. So just for the sake of argument, and Max will have discussed this extensively on the podcast, in the Oxygen show, if they change the narrative to Cecil saying, and Cecil never, I don't know if he actually directly stated I was in 001. He said it was winter, so I must have been in the SUV. (laughs) It's like you can't remember that. He, not, like it's kind of weird. So he phrased that's it. Weird. Yeah, it, and he was all. When was that interview? After like, after a while, or well, we watched it in no, 2017. No, what I mean. Out. Oh, oh, it's for the show. So yeah. it was a long time. Okay, guys. Within months. So yes, we're talking two years, rough about two years ago. I guess three years ago, depending on how long before the show aired, it was recorded. Okay, so yes, okay. quite a few years after. But still, I mean, how, how often does someone, I mean, he must have remembered that night. And the accident scene, the accident photos from the scene have never been released. So if he took photos from all sides, he'd be able to see which vehicle he was in, right? Oh, and man. one of the conspiracy theories is Wait, that they will, if they, the, won't release no, those they wouldn't even let Jesus. Art Roderick see them. And he's a U.S. Marshal. They wouldn't even let him see them. There's something in the photos, obviously. Otherwise, it's just we're talking a DUI walkaway. So why, why would they not release photos from a DUI walkaway? But here's the thing. One of the reasons they might not have released the photos is because you could see if you could see Cecil zero zero two sedan, because I mean I'm sure he took photos from all sides. If he has, a, I mean he's a military intelligence officer. So <laughs> even though he got lost to the scene, even though his dad lives near there. But anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, if the photos could show which vehicle he was in, so we don't have to do any guessing work. But anyway, so yeah, this whole thing there's a huge timeline issue here. So if you wanted to discredit. Or kind of shut down conversation on this. What's the best way to do this? Continue arguing with witness A or to tell Cecil to say that he was in 
0.001. And then say, oh, oops, the time is just a little off. It really was Cecil there. And the and it just the transcript has it wrong. Or the dispatch record has it wrong. So it's just easy. It's just the easiest path just to... I guess. I mean, what do you say? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I'm just so, saying like... Yeah. And this is Weepers or whoever's kind of assessment of the meeting that perhaps Karen misjudged where she was when she made the 752 call. Now, that's kind of strange. Frank Kelly is telling this woman who made the same call from the same spot where you can't get cell phone service earlier for however many years that she worked there. He's saying that she misjudged the sp- He's suggesting that she mis- Now, I'm not saying that's completely out of the realm of possibility. I'm just saying that's kind of weird. Your immediate response is to, oh, she just got the location wrong. Or she got the time wrong. Oh, wait a second. She's got her cell phone records. Oh, she must have got the location wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of weird. It's like they're going out of their way to discredit Karen instead of trying to make the pieces logically fit. It's kind of strange. It's weird. It's like, yeah. Ah, man. I like this witness. Yeah. So Alex said, and note, being familiar with that road myself. It is a desolate stretch of pitch, pitch black trees, and Beaver Pond is the only place you can pull off. <laughs> so not is it the only place you can get cell reception. It is the only place you can pull off, really. So there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that you had the location of this call completely accurate. Or law enforcement have a timing problem, according to Weeper. Well, at least he acknowledged that much. Or could another law enforcement vehicle 001 have been at the scene? It goes on then to say Karen assumed the law enforcement vehicle was Haverhill. Karen saw no one walking or running on Route 112 after passing the accident. Karen says, or before. Alex says, or before. And if you take in the account of you leaving work at 7.15, which is also given in both accounts, both your initial email and the account of whoever was reporting on your meeting, if you leave at 7.15 from that area, it is about 5.6 miles to the weathered barn corner, which is a rough driving time of 11 minutes, which add or sub somewhere about 7.26. Uh-huh. Alex says, and you stopped for a bit, not necessarily sure of how long, but a lot of people criticize the timeline and say it's way off. But to me, it seems like getting more and more accurate. Karen Karen laughs. And then you went on to say in the email messages between us that, quote, if I made a call after Beaver Pond, it would put me at the accident scene even earlier than 740 or 735. It is impossible to make a call before Beaver Pond. And you were working on finding your account number, but I think the uh, report from where you had your records right there is basically concrete proof of your first call. A couple, there was a few people talking on Reddit, which is a dangerous place to read. And they were kind of critiquing some of your story, saying they had an issue with some of it. And I just wanted to address some of those. I know a lot of people, like I've said, I think what you have to say is amongst the most important things in this case. And a lot of people have questions about it. Don't believe it. One of the questions is that what gave you the feeling that something was wrong and you had to stop? And what gave you the eerie feeling as you passed the scene? Karen says intuition alex says uh basically they said you know drove by saw a police car you still thought that something was kind of out of uh uh-huh the ordinary Uh uh-huh it's just intuition it was a very strong feeling that i could you know that it felt like i could hear you know a call for help and but but in my head it didn't make sense it's like i feel that but that it didn't make sense i looked over my shoulder And I'm like, the police are there. 
my cell phone doesn't work and it doesn't even look like a bad accident. So, and you, I, but I had to, you know, I had to think like I should go back and see if I can help. But like, what could I do? Say, excuse me, police officer, let me take this over. (laughs) It's like (laughs) Alex says, right. I don't know. I don't know. And I know I wonder why I didn't follow my intuition unless, um, you know, who knows? In retrospect, I think maybe I'd be missing too. <laughs> Man, that's a scary thought. It bothers me that people even think that I would want to insert myself in this case. Oh, yeah, it's like that crazy. You know what else is crazy? I mean, we'll, we'll be going into this in more in more episodes, but let's say for the sake of argument that for whatever reason, not necessarily the killer or the party's responsible, or if the party's responsible accidentally were responsible for something that happened to Mora, if they happen to be online, if they happen to be on Reddit or Facebook, they might be really trying hard to kind of steer the narrative and shut down any talk that goes to certain avenues. Now, again, they might be doing that for a good reason or a bad reason, or like some of the really crazy theories online, if this had something to do with some kind of CIA operation or whatever, they could actually be employed people posting online, yeah. which obviously, I mean, they, it's already yeah. it's already been reported on in the news that certain police departments and federal agencies, they actually have budgets yes. <laughs> to have people go online and either post as trolls or... Yeah whatever try to steer the narrative in some way so to think that's completely out of the realm of possibility that does explain some activity online doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) even with some supposed so-called experts in the case when they uh yeah they jump in in certain ways it's kind of there's uh yeah it gives you a certain inclination that something is off (laughs) that's what this podcast is We're we're paid by the police to do this podcast but then why are we criticizing the police you know, it's reverse psychology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is this is high level. Uh, oh man, that's funny. So, so you're getting a paycheck? I'm not getting. A paycheck. Where, where's this? Oh, I thought we were all. I thought you guys knew that. <laughs> what? I'm the highest paid here. Oh, that explains what the things that Johnny says. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. Alex says there's no shortage of that. One of the other criticisms was there were a couple in a couple accounts. It was mixed up as to whether, according to Weeper, you made uh, the first phone call was to check your voicemail, but you say you actually call your father or my husband, Alex says, or your husband. Karen says, yeah. Alex says, because there are some that say it's your husband and then there are some that say it's... And some people think that's kind of strange, but I think those people, and I don't want to answer the question for you, but I don't think those people understand what that section of Route 112 is like at night. It's completely, there isn't, once you turn around the corner after Mora's car, there are a few houses for a little while, but there isn't a streetlight until you hit Woodstock 17 miles away. Karen says, "Uh uh-huh. John says, I'll tell you what, you know, I'm, I'm as old as I am, as big as I am, and I carry a weapon. I'd be scared to death walking down that road. Alex says, think of that, but it's not just a back road. It actually goes through, it's a forest. It goes through a mountain pass. Yes. It goes through Kinsman Notch, which is right where Beaver Pond is. That somehow is where it opens up and where you get your cell phone service. What's so scary about it? Is like people get killed there? I mean, besides the Mora It's thing, just desolate. There, like, you know how like you go up to like just certain areas of woods it's where just there's creepy. no people? Yeah. It's just a creepy, well, there's no lights. kind of thing? Well, it's like a road with no lights through the woods. Okay. So I thought it was a little weird. I guess I didn't really understand that she like every day she would call. Yeah. Like, hey, I made it. 
right, well, I'm because, going in now. Because at that point, like I just said, it's 17 miles to Woodstock. That's a pretty good stretch of road to drive. So she, I guess it's, you know, well, some people also just, they check in with people a lot. So if you're one of those people, you completely understand. If you're not, yeah, and you yeah. never call anybody. But some people call people all the time just to gotcha. check in. Oh, I'm leaving now. I'm on my way. Like, so... And she, it's this routine. So to me, that lends credibility to her yeah, account. Yeah, because then she because has it's it on a, her It's bill, a daily like a routine. Yeah. 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 So yeah. If, it, if it wasn't that routine, that would be even stranger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and she obviously, yeah. and like Alex said, if you've been on that road, I haven't been on that road. I'm sure a lot of the, uh, the trash talkers on Karen haven't been on that road. <laughs> so if that's the only place to pull off, like, I mean, where, where else are you going to pull off to make your call? And if you pull off in the exact same spot every single day... <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it seems yeah. kind of weird to try. I mean, I'm not saying she did or she didn't. I wasn't there. I'm just saying it's weird that that would be what someone would have a logical problem with. Yeah. If she's lying, she's lying. But it, it seems like if she's not, then you're not going to criticize it's that. It's kind of like that bus driver at the Stephen Avery case. Like, she drops people off at the same exact time. Like, well, not exact time, but like, you know. That so you can remember that, but you can't remember anything <laughs> in the memory. <laughs> well, I, um, it was a visual, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Okay. Well, maybe you should watch the disappearance of Maura Murray on the oxygen. Uh, uh, not what the episode, oxygen Johnny? Show, are we taking bets? What episode do you think will Maxwell get caught up with the documentary? I haven't seen. A, well, hopefully, a hopefully, I mean, episode. hopefully, the case is resolved way before we get to fifty, because that that would be pretty sad if we got to fifty and the and nobody did anything about anything. But okay, <laughs> so. Alex says, so to me, it doesn't strike me as odd. Karen says, I know a lot of people that tell me they wouldn't even drive that road. And it used to be that there were a lot of potholes and it was very, very bumpy more so than now. The road's been repaired quite a few times. Alex says, well, basically they were saying, well, what did she do before she had a cell phone? Not drive? (laughs) Wait, what? And so... Because she couldn't call anybody. Karen says, I live here. Alex said, I moved here when I was a freshman in high school, I think. Karen says, "Uh uh-huh, that's right. Maybe 94, 95, 96, yeah. Alex says, and you said that when you saw the vehicle nose-to-nose, the blue lights were still on. Uh Uh-huh. The SUV, Uh uh-huh. And there were no lights on the Saturn. I didn't see any on the Saturn. I didn't see that. Did you happen to notice if any doors on the Saturn were open? You didn't notice if they were open or not open? Karen says, if I did, I don't remember. Okay. Alex says, do you happen to notice when you saw when you're pulling out on Goose Lane from Goose Lane onto 112 and then pass SUV is already on 112 and passes you? That's correct. Or during any of this, did you happen to notice any features of the driver like facial hair? Not at all. Or style glasses? No, it was dark. Well, one question I have is, does that look like the SUV you saw that night? Yes, absolutely. And those pictures were taken after the SUV was sold at auction in 2007, I believe. Yes. And I have seen it since. I've, I've uh, seen that since. So, yeah, that's the car. Alex says, and did you happen to notice if the siren was on by any chance when it went by you at all or it was at the scene or was it just the lights? I don't think so. I don't think there was a siren. The blue lights would be noticeable at 726 anyway. Yeah. Even though that's unreported, a siren would be unmissable. You notice no lights on the Saturn. Uh-huh. SUV had the blues on even at the scene. Uh-huh. And when you saw the Saturn, was it m- more up against the snowbank or was it more kind of in the road? Karen says, all I can say is that the impression was said that it appeared as though her car had just gone to the wrong side of the street and was parked against the snowbank, you know? Alex says, so it was close to the snowbank? 
Yeah, it wasn't out in the road. It was, it seemed like it was. Alex so, says, what? So it was just the blue lights? I mean, yeah. they have blue and red, right? Well, I think they just call it the blues. Like all of them are blue and red. Okay. I think, yeah, just the police lights. Yeah. Just referring to that, I think. Alex says, because Butch Atwood and all of his accounts, some of which I take issue with, that they weren't actually his accounts. But in all of his accounts, the vehicle was up, the driver's side was up against the snowbank. Then there is an account of the Marats, one of the Marats saying they saw the reverse lights come on amongst a couple of other things, but they saw the reverse lights come on. And the other person I know that drove by that night, who I had um, emailed Tim and Lance, who I won't name right now because they were not here when she drove by the scene, she said the car was practically in the road. She said it was mainly, it wasn't quite all the way in the road, but it was nowhere near the snowbank. And so, yeah. That's interesting. So there's different accounts of where the car was at different times. And we went over the Marat's account where it supposedly it backed up at some point. And then, of course, the Westman's, Faith Westman said it was a man smoking a cigarette. So if it wasn't her in the car and they were transport, we went over this theory many times. If they're transporting the vehicle to dispose of for some reason and the- and it breaks down or something weird happens or-, or a police SUV runs it off the road. Some people think Bruce McKay did that because Bruce McKay's MO is going nose to nose with vehicles. But there's also a tire track across the Westman's lawn. So that doesn't get talked about for some reason, but... If the SUV cut across the lawn to cut Mora off, or not Mora, whoever's driving the vehicle. We don't know. It may or may not be Mora. Alex says, I wonder whether or not what you saw was before or after Butch Atwood had gone by. So if you say it was up against the snowbank, it kind of tells me it would be before Atwood would have been there. But if there was no one there at the scene, I don't really know how that works out. Or maybe it was directly after. Or maybe Butch Atwood made up his whole account. Some people think Butch Atwood was a police CI, and that's why Cecil Smith was so one of the reasons he was squirrely in his oxygen interview and said that he didn't know Butch Atwood, even though they were supposedly friends. <laughs> and Butch Atwood's mom worked for the police department. <laughs> we went over all this, remember? Mm. <laughs> we got Johnny Army. Oh, <laughs> <Hell> yes. <laughs> John Smith says, and I think what we have to bring up right now is that Karen, our credible witness, is stating that the vehicle was parked parallel with the road, only in the wrong direction, in the wrong lane, and the SUV was parked nose-to-nose with it, which could mean that the car couldn't have been in the snowbank because the SUV would have been. Alex says, it was up against the snowbank. Was it parallel to the roadway, the Saturn? Karen says, yeah, it looked like it had gone and parked on the wrong side of the road. Alex says, so with this, was the Saturn being parallel to the road? Was the SUV also straight parallel? Yes, straight to it. So now you have that. You have Susan Champy telling us the same thing. Susan Champy is witness B, who we'll get into shortly. But also that the door was open. The door was open, but the police report tells us that the car was into the trees stuck in the snowbank. Isn't that kind of weird? Alex says, a lot of people don't take this for proof, and it's not hard proof, but this is a photo, a screen cap of the WMUR news footage. Yeah, it was taken three days later. I think it's Thursday. There are the stand trees somewhere in here, and it's disputed where she hit is somewhere here. To me, there are no tracks whatsoever indicating that a car went through these snowbanks into those trees. And Karen says, yeah, right. And of course, accident reconstruction has also determined that it did not hit a tree. So Alex says, so as you can tell, is melted there are depressions around the tree trunks and there are no tire tracks. 
Karen says, and I don't think it was where the blue ribbon is. I think it was further east, further east going uh huh, down the road. Yeah, which is kind of make room for the two vehicles. It would kind of have to be to make room for the two vehicles to be nose to nose parallel to the road. John Smith says, and Tim Westman does confirm that the ribbon was on the wrong trees that it actually hit or supposed to hit. <laughs> Alex says he said it's the strand of three. John says the strand of trees that he says that she hit the strand of three trees. She did not hit any trees at the weathered barn corner. Karen says it didn't. It didn't appear to me as if she had hit trees. Like I said, you know, my impression was that it didn't even really look like a bad accident. It just looked like she was on the wrong side of the road. Alex says, and did it kind of hard to remember probably, but it did kind of look like the SUV had struck. Were they close like they had struck or was there space between the two vehicles? Do you remember that? Karen says, I don't remember. Alex says, don't know that? Uh-huh. Tim says, do you recall seeing the windshield crack? Karen says, no, I did not see that. Uh, I didn't. Alex says, and being the driver's side, that would have been. Karen says, could have been. F the furthest away. Yeah, it could have been. I did not see that. Alex says, you didn't notice the airbags being deployed. Karen says, it was dark. Everything was just lit up with blue light which is disorienting. Uh-huh. Did you happen to notice anyone sitting in the car or around, sitting in or around the school bus, the school bus Butch Atwood's, at Butch Atwood's home? No. You didn't see any lights on the bus or you can see? No. Alex said, I'm not entirely familiar with how he parked. John Smith says, he's got a couple of different theories on that. Either he parked parallel with the road next to his barn. Actually, that would have been that would almost answer the question. Did you happen to notice, and you may not remember, did you happen to notice if the bus was in his driveway at all? She says, don't. I don't remember. All right. I wish someone had questioned me right then. Right. You never knew because you had seen the bus, you would have meant he would have already been to the scene. Lance asks, did you look to the other houses ever in the area? Were there any lights on in the houses that were in that area? Karen says, didn't notice that. Alex says, didn't notice any lights on or people at the White House on the corner or anything? Didn't notice that at all. No one looking through the windows. I didn't notice. Alex says, not something you really look for or you drive kind of trying to negotiate a corner. Smith says, you just saw the two vehicles at the corner. You didn't see any people milling around the car. Karen says, I don't believe I did. I don't think so. My theory for a long time was that it wasn't a police officer. That it was because someone had said to me the car was out of commission that night. And I think it was, it may have been the detective that had given me that information that the car was reportedly out of commission that night. And this is the detective for the New Hampshire State Police? No. Or one of the ones the family had contacted? Yeah, yes. And they said that he could give me information because he wasn't part of the official investigation. So he wasn't tied to any agencies? Right. He had told me a few things, but he did say that the car was out of commission, which made me think. Alex asked, and did he say where he heard that? Karen says, I thought he heard that from the police from the Haverhill PD that that car was out of commission. So my thinking was, and I thought this for many years, that wherever the garage was that housed the car, that maybe a mechanic was driving it or somebody from wherever the car was out of commission. What do you think about that? A rogue police mechanic? Well, we mentioned this before, too. There were people who had previously been arrested for impersonating a police officer who lived nearby. Huh. One or two people. It's kind of weird, right? Case has no shortage of weirdness. Why would they impersonate? Well, how do we know their motives? <clears throat> Why do serial killers kill people? <laughs> mm. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs>
So Alex, yeah, go in the garage. That was my theory. Alex has taken a joyride. Karen says, right. And that's why I would say to everybody, check out who was driving 001. And did anyone ever get back to you on that? Not that they would owe you that kind of answer. Karen said, the state police, I called them several years later. Actually, I think my cousin, who is a journalist, called them. So someone from the state police I talked to and faxed my cell phone records to him and said, got back to me and said that, you know, sometimes they just use different numbers, that sometimes the number is assigned to the officer, not the car. So even if the report said 002, it meant 001 or whatever. It was not like a big deal. But we know in the police reports, it's H2H1. Uh-huh. 001 is the car designation. Right. But Karen said, I was told, no, they looked into it. And that's, you know, not an issue. Well, that settles that. They said it wasn't an issue. <laughs> Alex asked, when I told you that I was interested in the case, did you tell me that you had a journalist cousin that was interested in too? She's actually the one that we have heard some of the vehicle was out of commission? No. Oh, she, Karen said, well, she just told me after the detective had said it to her. And you kind of relayed that to her? Yeah. Yeah, she was very interested. I'd love to know who that detective was. I think it may have been, it was one for the family. John says, it seems like it would have had to be somebody from the NHLI, which would maybe be Healy. Karen said, and he told me that also that Butch Atwood had never been a police officer. He hadn't according to what? True. John Healy later went on record, Alex says this, John Healy later went on record, I believe, and saying that Butch Atwood knew more than he was telling, and he was scared of the people he had something on, basically. I don't know what he was saying. I didn't know that. Alex said, and again, John Healy is, I believe, a 20-year retired New Hampshire State Police. John Smith says, yeah, and when I spoke to him at first and tried to throw any of my theories, he said, no, Rick Forcier, he's it, and he's our main one, and we're not concentrating on anything else. So that's kind of interesting. So they're saying that they only want to look at Rick Forcier. So is Healy part of the cover-up? Is Frank Kelly? We don't know. In a future episode, we will go over the people behind the case and look at some of the connections between these private investigators and various other parties in this case. Very, very bizarre. Are they steering the narrative, Maxwell? Steering. Alex says, is this before or after he said that Atwood knew more? John Smith says, this is before. I met him. Me and my girlfriend had dinner with him at the Eastgate Hotel, and uh, that was his statement. He was like, this is what we are concentrating on. There is nothing else. I was like, how can you say there's nothing else here? You're not being a private investigator. Alex says, there's actually a Reddit topic about his CrimeWire interview, which I haven't watched personally. John Smith says I haven't either. Alex says, one of the comments was how they kind of got the impression that Healy was holding back what he really thought was going on in the interview. And I wish he would say more or that he was actually or what he was actually thinking. Alex said, I don't have anything to add to that, but I was always just very curious about who that was. Karen said, well, then that's who... That was because he's the one who told me he had gone to Florida, investigated Butch Atwood, and found out that he had never been a police officer, and I guess he sold the house right after. So this is John Healy, I guess, that told her that because he was the one that did that. Eight, Alex says 18 months or somewhere in there or something. John Smith says, well, I think it was further after that. But anyway, I don't know. I don't know personally. Don't think Butch did anything, but I just don't know what it is. Alex says, he, I can't say that they didn't see anything. Those people on that stretch of road. John says, right, right. And that's what I feel. I feel the biggest reason Butch was so evasive with his questions and changing his things was because he was either scared or he was told to. 
Alex says, and he did catch on to the fact that his account of one article said that according to police, a witness saw her intoxicated at the scene. The only witness to have seen Moore Murray that night was Butch Atwood. After the article was printed, Butch Atwood went on record and said, I never said she seemed intoxicated. So that is the police putting words into Butch Atwood's mouth. Karen says, wow. John Smith says, and John Healy putting the words into her brain that that couldn't have happened because the cruiser was out of service. John says, if he's the first person to say that, that's bold. Alex says, New Hampshire State Police, or if it came from John Healy from Haverhill... John Smith says, John Smith says, Haverhill. Karen says, yeah, the impression that I got was that that's what had been told and the car was out of commission. And I don't think that he's necessarily believed that. That was just the official response, basically, Alex asks. Karen says, yeah, but so that led me to all these years thinking it was not all these years, but back then thinking it was someplace at the garage or wherever that car was, you know. Alex says, that's a good idea, actually. It is anywhere in your research, John, were you ever able to determine whether or not the vehicle was in the garage, the 00 SUV, if it was in a garage out of service at the time. John says, no, the only thing I can tell you is that about three weeks later, I was told the vehicle was at McKean's shop who does body work for repairs. Three weeks later. This is the SUV, Alex asks. John says, yes, this is the SUV and that's what I was told. Alex said, now in our discussions, Karen told me that years later you had actually had an accident on Route 112. Karen says, that's right. Alex says, and your vehicle was towed by McKean, who owns Northland Towing, his company, Northland Towing, which is owned and operated by McKean, which was actually supposed to be the tow company that was on call the night of Mora's accident, yet the police called Lavoie to the scene, and McKean arrived later at the scene, and it was a bit of a subtle over whose tow it was supposed to be. Remember this, Maxwell? We talked about this a bunch of times. So I, remember, Mc- I remember something about the tow. McKean was on rotation, but they called Lavoie instead. Yeah. So, and Lavoie's interview on the Oxygen show was kind of a uh, suspect as well. I don't know if you watched that. Probably didn't, Maxwell. Uh, I haven't seen any. <laughs> I, I saw, I you saw haven't the, seen anything I about saw the first half of the, like, 10 minutes of the first episode, <laughs> I think. Okay. Alex says, who's that call supposed to be? You mentioned that he told that the 002 sedan had been towed by him out of a snowbank earlier that same day. Can you expand on that? Karen says, yeah, when I went to retrieve the things from my car after that was totaled. Alex asks, do you remember how far after? Do you remember when this was, how far after Moore's accident years later? Karen says, I know it was on November 18th. Karen says she had her accident about an eighth of a mile from where Moore's was. Alex asks, do you remember if it was east or west? Not that it really matters. Karen says west. So it was more towards the stagecoach store. Karen says, no, 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 I'm sorry, east. It was east, closer to Lincoln. Yes, I passed that spot, and it was on a stretch where the river and the road goes close to the river, and it was ice. John asks, icy. Karen says, black ice, and I flipped it. In any case, my car got towed there, and after I got out of the hospital, I went there to get things out of my car, and I saw a police SUV, a brand new one, or a newer one. Alex asked, do you know when they got their new SUV? I would kind of like to put a year on that. John said they sold the other one, too. Alex says 2007-ish. John Smith said 2007. So somewhere around three years after, John says it might be March, I believe. So Karen says at this time it was less than seven years ago, I'd say. John says, so yeah, I mean 2007, that's three, and three, three and a half years. Karen says, and so we went, I asked him, I said, I see one of the Haverhill, you know, cruisers here. 
I said, do you work on their cars? Because I'm thinking something. I found the place where, you know, maybe the car was out of commission. Alex says, yeah, they took the joyride. Karen says, and he goes, well, sometimes I do, you know, but I'm not always. And I said, do you know, do you happen to know, do you remember the night Murrah Murray disappeared? And he was like, I do. He said, I remember that night really well. And then he went on to tell me how earlier in the day he had to pull, he got a call to pull the sedan 002 because it had gone off the road and he had to, you know, pull it out. And he said it wasn't damaged. But by later that day, he heard on the scanner that a car had gone off the road by the weathered barn. And so he responded to it. But when he got there, he found that the police had called somebody else. And it wasn't their turn in the rotation. He was a little ticked off that they called him for a freebie to get it pulled out. But they didn't call him for, you know, towing a car. So that was an aspect we didn't talk about. So if he didn't get paid for pulling 002 out, but then... The actual paying job, they didn't give it to him even though it was his turn. Why didn't they give it to him? Is it because he saw something, because something weird was happening between Cecil and John Williams? Between 001, 002? Hmm. Any thoughts, Johnny? Mm. <laughs> so that paying job, Alex said, did he have any details about the accident? What time afternoon that accident happened? Karen says, uh, no, I don't remember that now. If he had said to me when he had just said that afternoon and he had Alex and said and you and he never told you who was driving the 002 that day karen says i don't believe that he did i don't think he did tell me that alex said and john karen said but i was basically surprised because i'm thinking that because the car all zero two is what they said arrived at the scene first and if it had been damaged but he said it hadn't been damaged so it was a fine car so she's also stating here that zero zero two supposedly was the one that arrived on the scene first. So this is kind of critical. Was it 001 on the official report or 002? And if it really was 001 and there was no police conspiracy, wouldn't they say, oh, we're going to find out who 001 was? Like, let's say there's no conspiracy and it really was 001 there first, but in the official report, so let's say Cecil and the department is all on the up and up. Let's say they won't cover for Jeff Williams. Or if Jeff Williams wasn't involved, they're not going to just cover it because it's a 001 police SUV. They'd be like, oh, we got to do an investigation. We got to find out why a police SUV was on scene before Cecil arrived. <laughs> Wouldn't that be resp uh, the response of a non-complicit police department? Unless there was something else going on. Like I always say, they could be doing this for a beneficial reason since we don't know if Mora was a CI or they're protecting another case. Or for whatever, there could be a million reasons why they did it. I'm just saying if there was no other legitimate reason and they weren't complicit. What would the proper response be? So Alex said, according to weather reports, it was the road conditions were as dry and not slippery whatsoever that day. John Smith says, yes. According to the accident report, the roads were dry. According to Tim Westman, when I interviewed him last October, Tim's words were the roads were as dry as a summer day. I think that's his exact quote from that evening. Alex said, so there's no reason that a sedan should be sliding off the road and you had, I've heard mentioned before, I forget where I heard that the accident happened somewhere, somewhere around 4.30 in the afternoon. Do you know, do you have any more details on that? John Smith says, the only thing I can tell you is that we were told by a local that they had heard it on the scanner, that they heard it on the scanner, that they got the call that uh, 002 had slid off the road and it was not an accident. Slide off the road, it was at a parking lot. We're near a parking lot on Route 10. That's all I know. And I heard that it was someplace close to the Grafton County Sheriff's Department. But I'm not sure exactly where. 
Alex said, and it wouldn't be in the dispatch record because the dispatch record doesn't start until 6 p.m. and it happened at 4.30. Huh. John Smith says, right, and these guys, when they were there, the wrecker showed up, and supposedly this is now, this is local rumor, but whoever they said that Williams was driving the cruiser, Smith was in the SUV, and Smith came out and put Williams into the SUV and sent him on his way. That's how Williams ended up in the SUV that day, was what we've been told. And this is the reason that they put him in the SUV and sent him was because he had been drinking. And it is a very well-known fact that all around town that Jeff Williams has an alcohol issue. Very big alcohol issue and a very big anger issue as well. He's, he can be very volatile. And that's from a bunch of locals. Hmm. All right, what does that tell us? So he's saying the rumor was that not only was Williams in the SUV, but that Smith put... Williams in the SUV what does that mean like did he physically help him to get into it and why was he is the whole reason they're covering this up maybe they had nothing to do with Mora but is the whole reason they're covering it up because a police officer put the chief of police put a drunk chief of police in a vehicle and sent him driving any thoughts on that would that be a reason to cover this whole thing up because that would mean you'd have to fire Jeff Williams and Cecil Smith and there's only a couple of officers even in that whole police department. That just makes everybody look bad. And then they'd be like, well, why Why was Williams not fired many years before if he has such an alcohol issue? And why are police officers enabling other officers to drive drunk? Is that all it could be? Nobody has any thoughts on a podcast? I need, I need a break. You didn't follow? If a police officer is allowing, an, not just allowing, but helping another drunk police officer get behind the wheel of a vehicle and drive around. Yeah. Is that weird? Like, you have no thoughts on that? Yeah, that is weird. I think we talked about this on the first episode or something. We talked about it before, yeah, but I'm talking about it now. Is that, And my question was, is that a whole reason to do this whole cover-up? To just protect that one officer helped another officer drive drunk? It's enough. I'm sure people have done it to cover up a drunken officer. Karen says, when I thought that it was somebody from the garage or something that may have taken that car and I had no idea who the garage is or who that might be where it was out of commission, that was one thing that I really told anybody and everybody to check out who was driving 001. But then when I realized that the police weren't interested in finding out about 001 and that it could have been the police reports are different than what I saw, I started to get very afraid, you know? Alex says, throws up a red flag and just being an observer. Karen says, very, very afraid. And in fact, you know, I had said this to many people. If I ever have a police car to try to stop me on 112, I'm not stopping. I'm going to keep going till I get to some place where I know I'm safe. But it made me feel very unsafe. And then it made me feel or I started to feel like I might not want to attach my name to being a witness to this because then I would be in jeopardy. And working in Woodsville and Haverhill, I didn't like that feeling. Alex said, yeah, potential for some pretty serious backlash. John Smith says, yes. Karen says, that's what I thought. And I had also heard a lot of, you know, local people talking about a cover-up. So we have locals talking about other locals. So they're saying Williams has a drunk driving problem. They're saying that rumor has it that Cecil put Williams in SUV 001 after getting into a ditch due to being drunk because the roads were supposedly dry as a summer's day. And then we have locals also whispering about a cover-up. So does that tell you that locals don't trust the police up, up there? What does that tell you? If it's true. If this is true. And these individuals aren't lying. What does that tell you, Maxwell? Uh, I, like her, I like her tip. 
of going into like not stopping and then going in oh, front yeah. of like a house. Well, that that's a common I just, tip. I just imagine when, uh, myself like yeah. That's a common tip because there were serial killers who impersonated police officers or dressed yeah. up as police or just random crazies. I might have to do that if I ever get like. You know, sirens, and if it's like five miles out, he he he's got to chase me for five miles. <laughs> you gotta shoot your tires out. <laughs> well, if it's just one, like well, if you drive if slow and you're not I need, to be a threat, like, there, it would be good. Like I would, I would pull up to that house and honk my horn and make sure somebody sees. And then that was just a news story just a couple of years ago. I remember hearing that on the radio. Like some woman was stopped by some guy dressed as a police officer. Oh, I don't geez. remember what the deal with the cruiser was. I think he might have said I think it might have not been an actual cruiser, so it was like a charger or something, where it was like a police vehicle. Huh. And he just stopped her and he was dressed like an officer. Wow. And he had like a fake badge or whatever, but he did it real quick so she couldn't see. And, and he ended up killing her. What? Oh wow. And so there were actually news reports that like if you if you're suspicious of a vehicle, you could actually call police yourself. That way you can give them plate. I like that. And then they give you a ticket for being on the phone. What? And they give you a ticket for talking on the phone. <laughs> Hands-free device, man. You got to have your <laughs> well, hands-free get, setup. I'd rather, yeah, I think I would risk that. Get yeah. get a ticket I mean, for in the your, phone. I mean, in your then. Lambo, you could definitely outrun, outrun them, though. Oh, why Lambo? are you giving away that, that Maxwell's a Lambo? <laughs> I think you're the only World War One veteran with a Lambo. <laughs> <laughs> and divorced, right? You said he was divorced. Oh, yeah. Oh, is that was that part of your divorce settlement? <laughs> what are you not telling us, Maxwell? Oh, man, that's what how are you I not roll. telling us? That's how I roll. <laughs> <laughs> they see me rolling. They hate me. <laughs> Maxwell theme song. <laughs> Alex says, and to me, like I said, it's not just a case of you trying to insert yourself into the case. We have an email you sent April two thousand five, and the family can verify who you are. And I know there's going to be a large segment of the internet community that's like. Well, I can say my grandmother was witness A, and John Smith's like, uh-huh. Alex says, you have been verified. I have believed your account right from day one. John Smith says, I think I could add in here now that the New Hampshire State Police and the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit and the FBI are aware of who Karen McNamara is, and I have it on good authority that one person, at least in authority, has said that Karen is a credible witness. And if they feel that Karen is a credible witness and they believe what she has to say, then how can they not believe and deny her the fact that she saw SUV number 001, the Haverhill Police Cruiser. So how can they play that I say that two-card, that two-sided card? If they are calling her a credible witness, but they are saying, no, you didn't see what you thought you saw, she's credible. Susan Champy is credible. Both their stories match unless they've been sitting in the cafe down the street making up their notes to get this all perfect. Don't think so. In the accident report, it says... They say one thing where the car was. They say the car was in the snowbank. Gone hit the tree and it was lodged in the snowbank. No, there's no tire tracks going through the snow and there is nothing resembling tire tracks in the snowbank. You showed that just a second ago. Alex says, well, it's not hard and fast proof, but certainly to me you would think that there would be evidence of a vehicle. There would be tracks going through the snow. There is nothing resembling that. John Smith says, uh-huh. Alex says, you can see tracks of a vehicle kind of pulling up along the way it's been described. Yes. Parallel to the roadway, but I don't see a vehicle traveling through the trees. And we've gone on and on online on the podcast comments and your blog about what may be the thud that the Westmans could have heard. In my mind, with a couple of videos comparing some Saturn airbags going off and stuff the windshield breaking, all that was definitely not from ahead. To me, it was clearly from the airbag. I don't know if the thud was from another vehicle impacting her vehicle. It doesn't sound like that from what you saw she impacted anything. If she was up against the snowbank, there would be no thud made by any of that. Once again, if we go back to the theory that there were two different events that night on the road within an hour of each other, 
maybe there was another event either earlier or we don't know where there was a thud. We, we don't know. But there were no marks on the trees from a car striking a tree. So it looks like there are no cars at any point that day struck a tree. But as far as the thud, there could have possibly been another event. It's all speculation, but it doesn't add up to the official story. Alex says, that seems like the furthest truth away. So I know the community itself has a lot of questions, a couple of which we tried to address, one of which was your wording in your initial email, how you never said anything about the SUV. It was a police car. We've established that's kind of just the way you refer. Karen says, I've had several SUVs myself. I drive one now and I never call the SUV. I call it the car. I do remember when they said to me, do you recall if that 001 was a sedan or an SUV? And I'm like, yeah, it was an SUV. Alex says, and this is the police? Karen says, no, the family. When I met with them that time, I was like, no, it was an SUV. But it didn't seem significant to me. I did not have all the information in the bigger picture. That's just what I saw. And some people will never believe it because it goes against the official timeline of everything. It just doesn't quite add up in people's eyes that there is no way we will have a 100% answer to everyone's questions. Karen said, I questioned it myself, and I thought, how can they say this when this is what I experienced? And I tried to make it fit. I tried to make it make sense, and it just didn't, you know? Alex says, and people take issue with that. Karen says, and when I started feeling scared, you realize that for a long time, I have no idea if any of this was going on when you told me that. I was witness A. I was like, I didn't even know what you were talking about. So she didn't know she was witness A. <laughs> Alex said, I have... You said something along the lines of, I can't believe what I saw that night was public. Karen said, yeah, I didn't know that. So basically what they're getting into now is how did Witness A's account get public? Alex asked, have you stayed in contact with the Murray family over the years? Karen says, Helena and I, you know, chat sometimes online. Have you ever talked to Fred Murray? I did once, way in the beginning. And, you know, Helena has said that's not a good idea because he's so emotional. Alex said, and when you met with the family and this was reported, which member was meeting with you? Helena. Yes. Okay. So Tim asked, do you know Susan Champy? Karen says, no. It was, you know, I don't know how many years later I came around that corner and there was a car that was an accident right there in the snowbank really badly. And I stopped to help the guy, but nobody from any of the houses around came out. I was just thinking like, you know, Mora was there. Didn't the neighbors come out and look and do anything? Alex said, you'd think they might want to. Why would they get even more worried to get involved? Karen said, but then somebody did say that, you know, at least once a year there's an accident there on that corner. But that really gave me the creeps that this guy was like stuck in the snowbank. I got out and I had to, sh and I had to shovel trying to help him. We couldn't shiv shovel it out, so I gave her a ride to the store. And this was heading east, you know that guy? I think he was heading east. Alex said, because going around the corner, having driven it many times, if you actually were to lose control of the vehicle and slid, even though it was a dry day, you would not end up the way her car ended up. John Smith says, no. Alex said, you'd end up much closer to the actual apex of the corner. You know what I mean? Kind of more west. You can just go more straight down the street and turn around. And we went over this a couple of times as well. I'm sure Maxwell remembers that the accident occurred quite a distance down the road where it, it doesn't seem like negotiating that corner would have caused the accident because it was so far from the corner. 
Karen says, well, you know, I hesitate to put myself out there like this too. You know, there was many times I'd drive by and I'd be asking like, how did that happen? How did she end up with her car there? And one time, and it wasn't, you know, a particularly slippery night and it was past that point on 112, I was thinking, how did that happen? And my car spun around and I was facing the wrong direction on the, on the side of the road, just like hers would have been. I said, oh, that's how that happens. That can happen. John says, and see, in your instance with a slippery road, yes, that makes sense. But in Mora's case, Alex says, not only according to the weather reports was it dry, but according to Cecil Smith's description of the accident in the report, the road conditions were dry and not slippery. John Smith says, and in Tim Westman... And in Tim Westman's account, Karen says, I don't remember being particularly slippery that night, but I also know that night I had my accident and told in my car it was like in the 50s that day and it was perfectly dry and most of it was not slippery. It was just a certain section where the ice was. John says, well, especially that road down there by the river, it freezes up. Okay. So John also says, well, I think what I would like to my part that I would like to point out because we have Karen here with us is that to just give people a better idea of how she could have seen the cruiser twice and if you're on swiftwater road in goose lane off of swiftwater road is a is a road called cemetery road karen says uh-huh and cemetery road cuts off to the left and comes out on route 112 further west and further west of the stage shop store alex says it looks like a y john smith says yeah looking at a y and so once he passed her there he actually went down cemetery road karen says which is paved john says which is where he was going and then she got to route 112 and that's when she pulled on to 112 he had to come out further west and had to pass her again how fast would he have been going to pass you twice Tim asks. Karen said, faster than me, but I don't know. No, I didn't. Faster than me, that's all I can say, and I was not in a hurry to be behind a police car with those lights on. John Smith says, right, you were already on 112 when he passed you the second time. Had you turned on towards just barely, so that would be just right. Karen said, just pulling out into the stop sign, and that's another thing that made me think, uh, whoever it doesn't know where they're going, you can't be a police officer. He would know where he was going. That's what I thought. So she's basically indica indicating that her intuition is that it, this wasn't a police officer. Or I guess, w would a drunk police officer act like a non-police officer? I don't know. John Smith said, and I think, sorry, the perfect time to add this is Cecil Smith's exact words on Wednesday morning to the family was, I got lost on the way because I'm not familiar with the area. <laughs> we have a veteran of the force who is a former military police officer. Now get this. Now, Cecil Smith's father lives on Bunga Road, which is on Swiftwater Road, on Route 112, right across the corner from the stage shop store. <laughs> Alex reiterates, right around the corner. John Smith says, so I find it pretty hard that a police officer in his own town with a father who lives only two and a half miles from the accident scene doesn't know where he is and got lost. <laughs> Sounds like a Maxwell Powers moment. <laughs> Do you get lost well, a lot? Well, if if it's weird, like if you if you take a certain path, I guess there's only like a, only a few roads, so I, I guess that's messed up. Yeah, but but like it's not if, a huge. It's not yeah, New York City. It's not yeah, because it's not like because sometimes like it takes like this one particular town. I always took one pattern, and then I took another pattern, and I, and I got lost in your <laughs> so own town. Like, yeah, because I never took the those roads, huh. or it would be unfamiliar, like not not completely lost, but like. I yeah. would have to think. I would, I would have to think about the, the where I was. Maxwell Army. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Karen says, so you're thinking that he was saying that in response to the fact that a police car passed me twice, John Smith said, I think he was saying that in response to the fact that you were passed by an SUV and he thought they were trying to cover their tracks because then that makes sense why it took him 17 minutes to get to the scene from wherever he was. It took 17 minutes to respond. So if it took, if this is the sedan, so if it took the sedan 17 minutes to respond, okay. I mean, you're seeing the SUV before that. So what is this SUV looking for? I mean, we know what you saw, you know, it's obvious what you saw and that it's right there. And for him to get lost and go down Cemetery Road, I don't think he was lost. I think he was looking. I think he was on a mission. He was looking for somebody. Huh. Now, there's a whole bunch of different theories. If if they know about Bruce McKay and if Bruce McKay was somehow involved or Bruce McKay and Greg Floyd, if the cops know about him and if he's a CI or whatnot, if Greg Floyd's a CI, if McKay's working with him, if McKay's kind of like a rogue that they can't do anything about... Are they trying to protect Mora? Was this all a crazy scramble to try to help Mora? Help Mora in what way? Well, I, I just said, if Bruce McKay, the rogue police officer, is responsible, or him and his buddy Greg Floyd, who's a police CI, if they're responsible, are the police, since they couldn't do anything about... about uh, responsible in what way? They're trying to help Mora because the, the officers did something to her, the other officer that they can't do anything about. So they were trying to find her. I just said that one second uh, before you asked your I question. Didn't I didn't hear it. But how did you hear the next part then? <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. It's like a, it's like a wave, I guess. Okay, on and off. I need yeah, to get the timeline on that wave so I can time. I can time. I it's kind of random. So do you get? What do you think about that? If they're trying to protect more, or they're trying, they she has an encounter with McKay. And Cecil and Williams, even if Williams is drunk, they're trying to help her. And they're just driving around looking for her because they think McKay might was after her. Is that a possibility? Yeah. That'd be an interesting twist. Cecil Smith and Jeffrey Williams are the good guys. Or, you know, it's even weirder if one of them is a good guy and one of them is <laughs> is with McKay. Oh, that's real weird. Okay. So John says, okay, so I mean you're seeing – okay. Karen says, yes, that's so strange. Now they have, have they ever had a sedan that said 001 on it? John says, no, not like that. Alex says, maybe they did, but not at that time. So John Smith says, I think they had, I think they had three cruisers at that point in time. There were three cruisers. So there was 001, SUV 002, and there was sedan 003. Alex says, and when they sell them, they remove the lights and all the decals. John Smith says, yeah, just what you see right there is the way it was sold. All right, so that's Witness A's full account. So thoughts on Witness A? Credible, Johnny? Yeah, it could be. Um, <clears throat> can you just... So she was always known as Witness A from the get-go? Right, the and then at, at, at this... Yeah, at this... And then at that point, she went public with her Once name. she went on that podcast, yeah. she said, Hi, yeah. I'm yeah. Witness A. Yeah. My name is this. Yeah. Okay. And that was... How, when was that again? Wait, so what podcast was that? That was the Missing More Murray podcast. That's the Tim and Lance guys? Yep. So, again, if the people that have religiously listened to their podcast, their podcast, not that it was super accurate. I mean, they had a lot of things wrong at the beginning, which, again, might have not been really their fault. There was a lot of different types of information. Like, once again, that you know, there's quite a few people out there that think we're putting out facts. We're putting out theories based on information that's put out. We're not we're not assuming anything is a fact. This this is a logical podcast. So there are no facts here. There's only some theories 
supported by certain evidence, which may or may not be factual evidence. So yeah, before that episode with, with this A, they seem to be some somewhat legitimate in trying to find out what really happened after the episode, you know, and the oxygen series was coming out, they kind of aligned themselves with the police narrative for whatever reasons you could fill in the blanks there. I guess it didn't really matter. Right. No, I, I just I mean, wasn't sure if, um, cause that was 2004. So I wasn't sure how long they had their podcast up for. So this episode, they released it on July 24th, 2016. She so, might have gone public online before that. I don't know. I, I, the, her name might have been out there. But how do on we the know podcast, that's actually her, though? What? How do we know it's actually her? Well, the, it was that, a video. How do we know it's actually she's actually the witness because of her name? Or well, like... the other people that knew her. So Alex Dill okay. John Smith talked to her. and um, uh, Okay. So the John other Smith, pe- the family, Fred Murray talked to her. Gotcha. Helena okay. Murray. It wasn't just to... some random person yeah, that yeah. could have no, all been these some people random talk, person. All these people talked to her. I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> So what thoughts? So yeah, that's pretty interesting. 2016. Um, and her original in 2000. I mean, she she reported it days after, and then she in 2005 she started interacting. Yeah, I think it's pretty credible. Uh, she says she saw zero zero one. So I guess SUV. that's really what she saw. Maxwell, and that's what she said from right yes. from the beginning. Yeah. No not like after yeah. hearing no all changes this in stuff. the story. That coincidence. It's also eerily similar to the Butson sighting, where the cashier said she saw someone who looked like Mara with two friends walk in, and people are saying, "Oh, she's coming out with this many years after the fact," and then they find proof that she actually said made the report immediately. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. So yeah, somebody must have took, taken that car out, right, and just drove it. So it was either Williams or a Joyrider or, I mean, what are the options? And somebody else saw 001 too, right? Or was she the only one that saw 001, like the actual 001? That's a good question. Um, I don't, uh, we're going to go over all the other witnesses. I don't know if the other witnesses confirmed that, but there's a reason. See, for the Oxygen Show, they never interviewed the fire department who were dispatched there. Like what they could all say what Cecil was driving was he zero zero two. We're also gonna go over some interesting comments by Monahan. That's weird. So they never they never questioned the nothing official. No, it's kind of weird, right? Why why are but they why not... can't, can't they do that now? They won't talk. John Smith tried to. They um, they, f- they won't talk. That's messed up. Gag order, Maxwell. There's a gag order. All right. So here's so let's let's go over this again. So Karen sees zero zero one nose to nose with the Saturn seven thirty five. She talks to police within days after seeing it on the news. Law enforcement tells her at a commission. So she's getting pushback. They're saying she couldn't have seen what she saw. That's kind of weird, right? Yeah. So Oxygen Show now says, oh, well, it was Cecil Smith in the SUV. Everything's fine. Karen's credible. Let's stop asking questions about the timeline. Here's what's weird, though. So John Monahan. He was asked about what Witness A saw. Here's his response. That's not what I saw when I got there. Cecil was there. So what is he what is so he was really weird on the on the oxygen show. Initially and he didn't talk for years. He never made and and remember his supervisor originally said he wasn't even there. So they denied that there was even a state trooper on the scene. Wow. So what does he mean when he's saying that's not what I saw? Does he mean that he saw Cecil in 002? Like what? It's it's kind of weird, right? He's saying that's he's disputing witness A's account. Or he's saying that's not what he saw when he got there. What exactly is he talking about? So, and of course they did not ask him specifically. What was Cecil Smith driving? <laughs> that's kind of curious, right? Why wouldn't they ask him that? 
So after this interview that Karen did with on the podcast, New Hampshire State Police visited her and they told her that her accusations were very serious. And Karen said she just stated what she saw. She wasn't making any accusations. So is this some kind of weird where they, they if they know the truth, then they're immediately thinking, oh, well, Karen's insinuating that we did something. If they did do something, would that be their response? Hmm. Maxwell? I don't, I don't know. All right, let's take a look at Erin Larkin's blog. So this, she posted this ex- October 18th, 2017. You're a big Erin Larkin fan, right, Maxwell? Yeah, I like her music. <laughs> what, what's so funny? Her what? Her, her, her uh, music. She makes her music? music. Oh. It's really relaxing. Oh, the intro music on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, I thought she's, you said she makes angel music. Oh, no, no, <laughs> like, like her, her podcast music, like her intro music is really cool. Oh, she has a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is this, she posted this on her blog, October 18th, 2017. Smith driving the SUV, witness A, and the timeline. It would be an incredibly bold lie for Cecil Smith to claim he was driving the SUV if he was not. It also seems far-fetched to suggest there is a police conspiracy in which Smith is covering for an officer who could be guilty of a serious crime, though such a situation would not be unheard of. Yes, Smith seemed nervous during the interview. Yes, his explanation as to why he would be driving the SUV seemed a bit rehearsed. In fairness, being interviewed for a television show would make a lot of people nervous, and it is difficult to make a judgment without knowing his baseline anxiety level. For the same reason, I do not believe it is fair to read anything into Kathleen Murray's apparent discomfort in front of the cameras. I do not believe there is a lot we can infer from seeing one short segment of what I assume was a much longer interview with Cecil Smith. Having said all that, it is Smith's timeline that gives me pause and that I am not quite able to square. Normally, it makes sense to give at least five minutes of leeway here or there when developing a timeline. Memory is imprecise. Not even dispatch records are perfectly accurate. Yet, with regard to time stamping, cell phone records are about as close to perfect as we can get. Fortunately, we have Witness A's cell phone records. We also have a fairly precise location as to when specific outgoing calls were placed from her phone. If we agree that the earliest Witness A could have made an outgoing call from her cell was 7.52 at Beaver Pond, And as the show demonstrated, that puts her at the scene at 7.37. My estimate was more like 7.34, but for the sake of argument, let's go with 7.37. While it would have been possible for her to place the 7.52 p.m. call after having passed the Beaver Pond, it would not have been possible for it to be placed earlier given the lack of cell phone reception in the area. In other words, in this case, plus or minus five minutes only works in one direction. While she may have passed the scene at 7.32, she could not have passed it later than 7.37, all things being equal in terms of traffic and speed. According to the records, Officer Smith arrived on scene at 7.46. If the latest witness A could have passed the scene was 7.37, then how did she see the SUV nine minutes before Smith ever arrived? That is not possible. Logically, the only way it seems possible for Witness A to have seen Smith in the SUV are 1. Witness A passed the scene later than 737, or 2. Smith arrived on the scene noticeably earlier than what is recorded in the dispatch logs, or 3. Some combination thereof. 
Could Witness A have arrived later than 737? Again, Beaver Pond is the first time Witness A could have gotten cell phone reception. So for her to have passed the scene later than 737 and drive the 10.8 miles to arrive at Beaver Pond by 7.52 p.m., that means she would have had to have been speeding. In the accident report, Smith notes that the posted speed limit was 35 miles an hour. For Witness A to have passed the scene at 7.46 p.m., she would have had to be traveling at a rate of 108 miles per hour between the accident scene and Beaver Pond. Maxwell, is that your average speed when you drive your Lambo? Uh, like 120. <laughs> wait, hold on. So, wait, the time is off? Wait, what time? Wait, you said she should have been going 108 miles an hour? If, if if the timeline is squared, if the police transcript is cor- if the police dispatch record is correct, then she would have had to have been going 108 miles an hour between the accident scene and and Beaver Which Pond. Which would basically say that she's lying about stuff, but she has timestamps. I thought. Yes. So basically, Cecil Smith was not there at that time. Okay. That's what that means. Yes. Or she was driving 100 miles an hour, or is lying. So oh, however, gotcha. okay. for so, the pest hun- scene. At 7.40, she would have had to be driving about seven fifty, uh, about 54 miles per hour or 19 miles over the speed limit. A bit fast, but certainly possible. Given the nature of the road, anything faster seems less plausible, and 7.40 is still six minutes shy of when Smith reportedly arrived at the scene at 7.46. Could Smith have arrived earlier than 7.46? Could he have been there by 7.40? Of course, it's possible Smith arrived a few minutes before 7.46. Maybe he got out and looked around the car before he radioed back to dispatch to inform them of his arrival. While that seems plausible, I do not think it is likely you could have arrived as early as 7.40 in time to be seen by Witness A for several reasons. First, at 7.42 p.m., fire and EMS were dispatched to the scene. If Smith was already on the scene by 7.42, I doubt he would have dispatched fire and EMS if there was no one there to treat. That's an interesting point. Notably, Smith releases EMS six minutes after they arrive on the scene at 8.02 p.m. It seems unlikely that they would have dispatched them out with no one there just to have them turn around and go home. That's also kind of weird because if it's a, if it's a DUI walk away, she could be nearby with a head injury. We don't. Yeah, that's kind of weird too. Unless they know it's not that for however they know that. Second, Smith says that after arriving to find the Saturn abandoned, he went up the road to speak with Atwood. According to the logs, Haverhill was Haverhill was not informed about Atwood's 911 call until 7.43 p.m., which would have been the first Smith learned of it as well. That means it is unlikely he visited Atwood before 7.43. Moreover, when Guy arrived at the scene, the EMS guy named Guy, Arrived on the scene at 7.56 p.m., he stated no one was there. This is presumably because Smith was up the road speaking with Atwood. According to Smith, he only spoke with Atwood very briefly. I believe he said a minute or two. That would imply Smith would have arrived at Atwood's within minutes of 7.56 p.m. as opposed to, say, 15 minutes earlier. Lastly, according to Smith's accident report, he was not notified of the accident until 7.35 p.m. That does not match what the dispatch log says, which is that he was toned out at 7.29. Another mistake? Possibly, but certainly a curious one. The time of 735 is coincidentally right around when I expect dispatch hung up on Faith Westman, just about when everybody would have looked away from the scene and right when I expect witness A was likely to have been driving by. So while the 735 notification could very well be just a sloppy error, the implausibility of the timeline suggested by his statements are enough to make me wonder 
whether another officer could have arrived around 7.34. And it was that officer that notified Smith at 7.35. For the record, Smith also states in the accident report that he arrived on scene at 7.45, which was actually one minute before he officially radioed in his arrival to dispatch and likely his arrival time. Conclusion, it is certainly possible that Cecil Smith was the officer driving the SUV that Witness A saw parked nose-to-nose with the Saturn. But as far as I can tell, that would mean that the facts we have about the timeline are not accurate, and the discrepancies would appear to be on the part of the police. There is also the outstanding question as to why Officer Smith, or whoever was driving the SUV, passed Witness A twice. Again, this could have a very reasonable explanation, but it is just one more data point that suggests we are not being given a full and clear picture of the events of that evening. All right, so what it seems more likely, that he arrived when he said he did and he and he radioed in and that's accurate, or that the whole thing's messed up and they're lying on purpose, or they have a really good reason for it. Maxwell? Yeah, I don't know. Maxwell Army. <laughs> Some, there's some hokey pokey business going on. Uh, yes, indeed. All right, so let's move on to witness B. This is Susan Champy. We went over her account before Maxwell. Johnny, I'm not sure if we went over it with you on a recent episode, so here it is. In 2011, there was a SoCo article that said she drove by and saw the passenger side door open and a police officer and two bystanders by the Saturn. Did you know this, Johnny? So we don't know who the bystanders were. They possibly could have been the Westmans if the Westmans went outside. We don't know. Okay, so this is a quote from the article. North Haverhill resident Susan Champy, who drove by the scene of Mars' accident, also recalled the road conditions that night. The weather was cold, 15 to 20 degrees, and maybe light flurries, but I do not remember it snowing that night. Her car did not have any snow on it. Champy said. When she drove by, Champy remembered noticing that police officers had one of the doors of Mora's car open. She recalled reading in the newspaper afterward that they'd obtained a search warrant the next day to search the vehicle, which made her wonder whether they should have had the door open without first getting a search warrant. <laughs> Champy was scheduled to finish work at 7 p.m. at the Loon Mountain Club the evening of February 9th, but she left late at 7.20 and had a 30 to 35-minute commute home. She drove by the scene of Mora's accident at around 7.50 p.m., she recalled, where she saw police and a couple of bystanders near the car. After learning about Mora's disappearance in the news, Champy said she always wondered if she may have seen Mora and perhaps been able to give her a ride somewhere to help her had she only left work on time. Okay, so there was a podcast. John Smith actually... Uh put this out there they state in a pod they stated they had spoken to tim and lance of the missing more murray podcast who said they spoke to susan champy and got her story and they say that susan champy saw a police officer and two bystanders and the cruiser she saw was zero zero two <laughs> i don't know why nobody's talking about this if this is true so not zero one but zero two right so that would have been Cecil. How, how did they get that information? Did they ask, did you see 002 or 001? Like, how did they ask that? Well, we don't know, but I guess they did. I'm just, I'm just curious. Or she offered that. She was like, oh, yeah, I saw the police cruiser. Then anybody said, wait, wait by cruiser, do you mean 001 SUV or 002? Yeah. That's probably how it played <laughs> out. But what difference does it make? That's the uh, information. Well, I I'm just phone. trying to get the accuracy because sometimes things that are out so of context. Here's, so here's what John Smith asks on his blog. 
the next big question. If indeed Tim and Lance spoke to Susan Champy and stated that she saw the 002 Crown Victoria at 7.50 p.m., this was seven minutes before fire department and EMS arrived on the scene. Also, don't forget that Trooper John Monahan stated in his oxygen transcript that he believes that Sergeant Smith was in the Crown Vic, 002. How do you... There's numbers on cop cars? Yeah. You don't know that? No. Oh, yeah. There's numbers on all the cruisers on the side. I had no idea. I know there's a license plate. Oh, no. Yeah, those num the numbers are the decals. Oh, so we should, we should pay attention to that then. Yeah, I'm I, not I, sure if it's on every single one. I, yeah, I don't know if it's on every single one out there, but I think it is. Because that would be the last thing I would look at. I wouldn't know that. <laughs> so like when, would... you, when you call 911, you'd be like, hey, uh, is there a police car chasing me right now? The number is 004 or something. And then Yeah, would you see it in your it, rear view, though? It's part of, reflect, it's part of the reflector decal. What do you mean reflector? Oh, well, you but it won't be in the front, so you can't even see it from the front, probably. It depends on the vehicle and the amount of decals, but uh, yeah. I don't remember ever. I know the city is on there, K nine maybe sometimes, and then just like their colors. No, I found some. I lo I looked up uh, like LAPD police cars, and I do see uh, Let me see. some uh, numbers. Let me see. On yeah, like right there. Uh, is there a picture of the that we could see from? So this is the actual one that she saw. And that's the reflector decal, 001. See how big it is on the back? They took it off, but you can see where it was. You see how big that is? Yeah. And there's another one on the side of it. That's the actual one that you saw. This is the one that was sold. That's that picture okay. right there. Yeah. Okay. Zero, zero, one. Huh. So it's huge on the side. Remember I was saying, like, why do they have it as zero, zero, one? If they don't, if they only have, like, four cars in the city or whatever? <laughs> like, it sounds like it's going to go to 100 or something. <laughs> right? Like, three digits? Make it seem like they have more. Or? That's just the way they do it, because otherwise it was car one. It yeah, just doesn't yeah, make it's weird. Yeah, even zero, zero one's zero kind of one. weird. Yeah, like through having I don't know. Yeah, I can see that. All right, so yeah, okay, so that's that's Susan Champy, and then she supposedly there were rumors in the Loon Mountain Club. We have the Loon Mountain Three, or she had a boyfriend there. So that's that's witness B. So we got to make that fit. Now let's move on to witness C. All right, you ready, Maxwell? Yeah, what do we got? We only mentioned this, I believe, once. So you probably don't remember. So Tim and Lance received an email from someone who drove by the scene and saw only her car, the Saturn. At the time they read the email, the sighting, okay, seemed unremarkable, but now it seems potentially very important. So supposedly it happened around 734. But they didn't see 001 with lights flashing approaching, or they didn't mention it. And they didn't see more walking. So their account is that they were going to visit someone in jail. An ambulance left at 8.02 and the fire department left at 8.49. So for them to see the ambulance at 8.02, they would have to have been, the sighting would have had to be before 7.13. So, because it was a 49-minute trip, so it's 17 minutes from the accident site to the jail, and that, that round trip is twice, and then ten, they were about at the jail for 10 minutes, and they were at Rite Aid for 5 minutes. <laughs> so, if it was before 7.35, that means that Mora wasn't there before 001 arrived. If it was between 7.37 and 7.46, if 001 pulled up and left, or if it was earlier than 7.13, they saw the ambulance... That would be weird if there was nobody at the car. So here's the uh, the email. 
This is on the Missing Maura Murray podcast, episode 26. Myself, my friend, and my cousin drove by Maura's car the night she went missing. I can tell you the car was on the wrong side of the road, facing the wrong direction. I didn't see anyone in or near the car. I didn't see any lights either. I can't recall the exact time, but I was driving to the jail to leave money for a friend. I don't think they keep a record this long, but I had to sign in the money. I wasn't there that long, as I do know it was past visiting hours, so I would say I was there maybe 10 minutes. After I left, I went back the way I came and stopped at the Rite Aid, maybe there five minutes, and headed back to Lincoln. On my way back, I saw a cop car, not 100% sure if it was a sedan or SUV, fire truck, and an ambulance. They filled out a police report, but never heard back. So this is kind of a common theme in the Moore Murray case. A lot of people fill out reports, a lot of people don't hear back. So... Someone posted this that they have it on good account that one of the visitors to the Grafton jail that night mentioned to one of the staffers and the staffers seemed to brush it off. So, because some people were saying, did the first response to that car come from these witnesses at the jail? Because if they told someone at the jail, oh, by the way, there's a car abandoned, is, was that the first official, res- did that lead to the first response? Or was it the normal, when people think the Westmans called the police as the first call? We don't know. So here is a random private message I received from someone who knows Witness C. Mm. Witness C is not fantasy. I used to work with her mother, and she is as solid as Witness A, but never wanted any publicity. I have spoken with her in person for details and backtracked her timeline from going to the jail in Haverhill that evening and based upon the jail time for visitors. Strangely enough, it led me to believe that she went by the scene heading west earlier than Faith's call at 7.29 p.m. My timeline and guess was between 7.10 and 7.20. Her account was the Saturn was in its final resting spot. No one around it at all. It was noticed by her because it was facing the wrong way on the other side of the road and at a dangerous corner. This points to an earlier stop there. When Witness C came back through, cops and fire were on the scene. She reported it to law enforcement and they never got back to her. I think she had one friend with her. So is Witness C legitimate? Maxwell, I know you've been paying very careful attention to Witness C. Yeah, I don't know. Johnny? (laughs) I don't know, man. (laughs) A lot of thoughts on this podcast. A lot of good conversation and dancing. (laughs) If you put as much energy into following as you do into dancing, Maxwell. (laughs) He's he's doing pole dancing. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what your ex-wife did? (laughs) Oh, my God. Hey, don't make fun of her. <laughs> she might be listening. Wait, how much money did she make for you to be getting Lambos as part of the settlement? Nice <laughs> one. Yeah, I needed a new line of work, like <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> but you don't even podcast. You have no thoughts on witnessing? People <laughs> say that, right? Like, what are they smoking? Nothing, po- nothing podcast, nothing Maxwell. I got nothing, man. I, I'm, I'm completely zoned out. All right, cool. Time. Good thing you're on a podcast. All right, let's move on to Witness D. 
Witness D. There are more witnesses. Jesus, so, man. John Smith. D. John Smith. Well, there actually might be Witness E, F, and G as well. That's why this podcast is called Witness X. Because there's a whole bunch of variables for which witness X. saw what. I'm just plugging them in. All right. So, Witness D is someone that John Smith has found out about who lives two to three miles from the scene. He said we haven't been able to track him down. He said he saw a person coming off the side of the road a short distance from the scene. Other than that, there's no definitive account. John Smith saw this person? Well, I'm, let me finish what John Smith is saying. We found out about him 10 months ago. I did not talk to him personally. I heard this from a friend of mine that used to work with him. Mm. I have not spoken to him personally, and I have not been able to track him down. And I believe Mr. Murray has been to his house several times, and he is never home. Also, never able to contact him by phone. Uh, well, wait, how do we know he's a witness? Because well, of what this friend John told him? John Smith's friend said that he apparently said that he saw a person coming off the side of the road not far from the scene that night. Mm. We don't have a timestamp. We don't know if this was more. Oh, we his don't... friend saw... John Smith's friend, friend knows this guy. He used to work with him. Okay, and he's the one that saw this dude. Yes, not John Smith's friend. The no. guy that John Smith's friend talked to. Okay, I got This you. is witness D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max, are you following? <laughs> not really. John Smith has a friend. Yeah. Who works with witness D. Okay, got so it. So John Smith's friend said that witness D told him that he saw someone walking okay. from the scene. Okay. Now... It's kind of weird how that happened, and we don't have more details. Did, was it a female, a male, an unknown in a hoodie, like Rick Forster sighting? <laughs> a dog? Okay. So we don't know, but this is just new information. So, And it's also kind of curious and mysterious how this person is never home and doesn't pick up their phone and apparently no longer works at that place. They just disappeared. If this is some kind of weird cover-up, did that person get disappeared? Get disappeared. Okay. So let's look at, let's look at other witnesses. So John Smith also reported on a couple who passed the weathered barred corner at around between 7:11 and 7:15 and they said that Mora wasn't there between 7:11 and 7:15 so that's all we have from there okay yeah. so Mora wasn't there or the car wasn't there nothing was there okay so there was nothing going on between 7:11 and 7:15 how did the people that lived there not have a clue on what was out there what do you mean like the neighbors i know you like the neighbors we do. went over the neighbors accounts many times yeah i know but it's doesn't match up with anything like they're blind or like they don't know what they're seeing <laughs> well faith westman originally said she saw a man smoking a cigarette i'm gonna actually get into them in a second but let's uh i mean definitely a mystery a little bit but uh okay so apparently there was another witness so i don't know if we're going to e f or g now it was a woman supposedly driving a Subaru who drove by closer to 8 o'clock and she saw nothing. <laughs> Shouldn't there be stuff there? Didn't they have a, a well, 24 when she hours saw to get the warrant to, to when look into the car? Well, if it was around 8, so at 7 something, they didn't arrive until, what, 8.02? So I guess if she saw by nothing, I don't know what that means. Does that mean the vehicles are there and Cecil's not there because he's with the Westmans talking to them? I don't know. I don't know what that means. Like, shouldn't it be this huge thing? Yeah. Like, oh, there's a... It should. A lot of me well, these are these are rumors. We're going to rumors now. We'll be, we're talking about people saying stuff. Oh, uh, okay. We're not talking about, like, Witness A with cell phone records. Like, We're talking yeah. about people that 
Suppose, yeah, to be supposedly. Like people. Also, Fred Murray mentioned in his Aaron Larkin interview that there was also a witness that spotted Mora in the back of a vehicle driving. <laughs> Max, did you hear that? On Aaron Larkin's podcast, which whose music you like so so much, yeah. When she interviewed Fred Murray, did you watch that interview? Yeah. Or did you just listen to the? Did you just listen to the music of the intro and that's it? The first part, (laughs) the angel music. Not like a, uh, yeah, yeah. I heard. When you say you listen to the podcast, do you just listen to the intro and outro music and that's it? Or do you actually listen? No, to I listen to the whole thing, oh, but I, I look forward to the intro and outro. <laughs> That's the most you look forward to. Yeah. Okay. So, Fred Murray said that s- there was a witness who spotted Mora in the back of a car, in that area. So, nothing. I don't know what happened with that, but that was just a quick thing that he mentioned, which is kind of weird, right? So we have a lot of witnesses saying a lot of different things. All right. N- no thoughts on that. Nothing. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go to the nine one one calls. So, and let's look at the timestamps on their calls. So, according to Detective West, Faith Westman's call came to Grafton County's dispatch at 7.27 p.m., Butch Atwood's call at 7.42 p.m. So here's another weird thing that some people constantly bring up. If, if Butch saw the police there, that means the police were not there at 7.42, right? Because otherwise, why would Butch be calling the police if they're already there? He would just, like, I mean, he's a couple feet from... The officer. So that's kind of weird. Okay. The information Atwood communicated in the 911 call at 742 is likely what prompted fire and EMS to be dispatched at 742 and 30 seconds, which was about 15 minutes after Westman's call to Grafton County Dispatch. So according to Atwood, he was talking on his front porch when he was attempting to get through to 911. He could see the road, but he could not see Murray's disabled car. And according to every statement and report, it was only after hanging up did Atwood report Haverhill police arriving at the scene. Why did he call? Why did he call? Yeah, he said he couldn't see her or the car. No, no, no. After, from the porch. Yeah. So he drove by her car. Oh, he said bus? that he saw her there. He asked if she needed him to call for assistance. Okay. And she said, no, don't call the police. And then he went and called the police anyway because there was a motorist with a disabled vehicle. In some accounts, he said the airbags went off and she appeared disoriented or whatnot. So he's calling the police because he saw an accident or the aftermath of an accident, according to the gotcha, story. According yeah. to the story. That's what I thought it was. I didn't know if you said that. Um, but yeah, he, okay. he drove by with his bus. so okay so for art's time so by the way art roderick always gets triggered whenever anybody brings up the timeline like i don't know if you've watched clips at press conferences and stuff Uh he always gets crazy triggered when everybody anybody questions the timeline <laughs> like so, like insane insane trigger or why don't you like, why don't you do some research on the case max we're doing a podcast on it art art, art roderick? roderick do you know who art roderick is no who is, that? <laughs> <laughs> who, who is it oh man maxwell powers maxwell who, army who is it he's the guy that did the oxygen show with maggie the two oh, of them no did the shit. Show. well i haven't seen the damn documentary <laughs> well so. you actually did see part of it i saw the first part with the yeah, he girl was in, it. in the beginning yeah, he was in it they introduced him and everything. He's a former U.S. Marshal, and he's got so-called law enforcement connections. Okay, so in order for t- Art's timeline to be accurate and for Smith to have arrived at 7.35, Atwood had to have called police while they were already there. It seems the simpler explanation is that Smith arrived at 7.45 or 7.46. 
Okay. Faith Westman said that she was one of three 911 calls. So we have transcript but not audio. So supposedly Faith said she was on the phone longer than she was in the transcript, which is weird. But who was the third call? So for whatever reason, Faith believes that there were three calls about Mara's accident. Could um, she be talking about the report at the jail from Witness C? We don't know. Or another neighbor possibly could have called. Why does she know that three people? Why? We don't know. That's what she was told. She just made that statement. We don't know. Okay. <laughs> this case is a mystery, isn't it? All right. <laughs> let's look at another account. So another witness, Robinson Ordway. This is the red truck witness. Remember the red truck, Maxwell? Of course. Really? You don't know who Art Roderick is, but you know the red truck. Okay, all right. All right. Well, the red truck is kind of like a good visual. <laughs> I just remember the Are you psychic. saying Art Roderick is ugly and not a good visual? Well, I've never seen him before. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's he look like? <laughs> he was actually at Ruby Ridge. <laughs> the plot thickens. What, Johnny? I just remember the red truck because of the psychic episode. Like, watch out for that big-ass truck. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever that lady, that oh, psychic Oh, yeah, center. that's right. Yeah, the psychic center. So this is uh, Robinson's account of the witness of the vehicle she witnessed. I wish I could give an exact description of the truck, but I cannot. I was walking that night at about 7 p.m. to the local store. As I was walking up the hill, a truck passed me and slowed down. When it got to the middle of the hill, it stopped in the road. I immediately looked at the plate and noticed it was from Massachusetts. There is only one streetlight there, and I could not tell how many people people were in the vehicle as i got closer to the truck it took up off the hill when i rounded the corner to the store i could see the truck in the driveway of the store as i walked into the parking lot which is well lit the truck took off towards the crash site of course at the time i did not know there was a crash as for the red truck it slowed then stopped and waited for me to get closer then took off up the hill he did not leave the store parking lot in any sort of hurry when I entered the store, I asked if she saw the people in the truck, and she said no. No one had come in. I told her about them stopping in the hill. Then we just forgot about it. I stood in the store a while, and that was when the police and ambulance went by. I never saw that truck again. The only way I can describe it is that it looked like someone who delivered wood. That was my first thought about it. Red, Massachusetts plates, and delivered wood, either having a wood body or even just slats in the body. It was not a king cab or extra cab, just a regular truck. That is all I can tell you. I was in the Swiftwater store for a half an hour to 45 minutes. It was about 20 to 30 minutes after I was there that the police went by. I am not at all Morris size, and in fact, I was bundled up that night. I believe I caught the truck off guard as I was walking well off the road, and as they passed, I walked back on, which is why I believe they stopped completely. They could not see me without any streetlights and maybe went to the store and waited for me to get up there to get a better look. I don't know. That's just how it seemed to me. That's kind of creepy. The truck didn't scare me. My thought is that they, he, she thought I was someone else. That is what I was thinking that night. When I saw them sitting at the store, I again thought they really think I am someone else. And as I got closer and I could see the driver moving around, I was thinking, there, I am not the person you are looking for, and he drove off. I wish to God I could remember what I was wearing that night, but I can't. Someone asked about the truck and whether it was four-wheel drive. I believe it was. I have been looking at trucks and have determined that it was definitely a four-wheel drive or at least it was a three-quarter ton pickup because it sat up high. The other thing I remember is that the window in the back was hard to see. It wasn't very large, which tells me it was an older truck maybe. So if she observed, if she left the store parking lot between 7.10 and 7.20 p.m., 
and Sergeant Smith arrived at 746. He would have passed the store at 745 and no earlier than 744. If he was driving the speed limit, the red truck continued down 112 and did not turn on a side road, it would have encountered the accident site between 712 and 722. So this is if Ordley's time is correct. And she observed Sergeant Smith passing by the store 20 to 30 minutes after she arrived. So that means that the, the red truck could have been at the accident scene before 727. So before Faith Westman's call and before Cecil's arrival at 746. So what do we think? Did the red truck go and pick up Mara? And then we, of course, have the uh, the Bradley Hill Road sighting where the red truck and a supposed report that someone did call the police. And uh, there was a red or there was a report of a red truck off the road, the driver in the woods. So did someone pick up Mora and then she tried to escape in the woods? We talked about this before, too. I'm sure Maxwell remembers. <laughs> no, nothing. No, I got nothing. <laughs> Okay, so our final witness on the episode is the new witness that has supposedly never before come forward. Coincidentally, coincidentally, with all this new talk of the GPR and all these other things, is this a distraction? We don't know. So the moderator of the Moore Murray Facebook page has mentioned that there's a witness that hasn't come forward before and saw Mora's vehicle. Supposedly, so this the current moderator of this site, apparently he contacted Helena Murray a while back and she was having computer trouble and he gave her a new computer. Does that strike anybody as weird? The moderator of the Maura Murray Facebook group yeah. gave somebody a computer? The current moderator. So when he wasn't, so Helena Murray passed away, but she used to be the moderator okay. of the page. And at the time, like, I guess he contacted her. He gave her a new computer. So here's what someone on Reddit had to say about it. Yes, perfectly normal for some strange guy to come all the way up from Virginia to meet with a family member running a Facebook page about a missing college student from 2004. Nothing odd with that. And then come up with a totally new story and a narrative from a witness no one had ever heard of. Yeah, okay. So this guy's from Virginia. Some people think that he has some kind of CIA connections or something, and he's involved in a cover-up. Uh, but he gives her a computer. They're like, well, why would you accept a computer from a stranger? Like, what kind of spyware did he put on the computer? Is he trying to monitor? Was there the... a webcam on it? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is he trying? is he trying to monitor information on the Maura Murray case? Is that weird or what? I don't know. But here's he posted on March 2018, he posted about this on the Maura Murray page. So we get an idea of if this is narrative steering or not. She was probably drinking, hit her head, died in the woods, but locals don't want intruders and amateurs should stay away. That's it? That's what he posted. So the moderator of her page is not interested in examining Rick Forcier. He's not interested in any theories because he thinks that she hit her head and died in the woods. Even though What body... do people say about that? I don't know. Like people didn't comment? Well, maybe they did. So I'm sure some would agree, some disagree. Like what, so what? <laughs> I don't know. The people who were uh, part of that page probably. Some people believe. Some people believe that she went up there to commit suicide. Like Clint Harding. I don't know. They just have trouble with logic. They believe that she just. They're willing to disregard all of this other evidence. 
They're willing to pretend none of this other stuff is going on. None of this other stuff is strange. And they just want to pretend that she went up there to harm herself. And that's the, that's the so-called facts of the case. And they take the words of some emotional people at some point who thought maybe she wanted to harm herself. Some, somehow that, that makes it true. That upset people apparently can't have a misconception about anything ever. <laughs> So there are people that agree with him. They think that she went up there to commit suicide. This, the, the suicide theory was actually more prevalent a couple of years back. Now with all this new info coming out, it's it seems like more people are starting to logically question. So is it a coincidence that there's a, some witness nobody ever heard of who's ne who wants to corroborate that she hit a tree or something? And they're also saying that there were trees or bushes that were cut down so you can't see them anymore. I don't know. It's all... It's all very, very, very strange, like most things in this case. So any final thoughts on all these different witnesses? Is there a way to make it all match up? Was Mora already gone by the time the SUV came up? Huh. Or was, was this Bruce McKay and Greg Floyd working in unison? Did McKay cut her off and block her and she ran away and then Floyd picked her up? Did Floyd have a red truck? <laughs> so, and were Cecil and Williams trying to save her because they know what kind of guys these guys are? Is that another theory? We don't know. We don't know a lot. We are just theorizing. We hope you enjoyed another episode of Mindshack True Crime. If you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. If you like the podcast, hit the like button. Feel free to leave any questions, comments, thoughts, insults. We will get to them all. And feel free to share the podcast across social media platforms. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Like our Facebook page. You can check us out on Twitter, Patreon. Reddit and <laughs> so this is Bruce McGuire signing off and Maxwell Powers and Johnny Mills we'll see you guys next time